This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. And we're back with the podcast about the dark side of creativity, art of darkness. I'm Kevin Couchman with mein Freund, mein, my main man. Ah, okay, I didn't know what, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't, that meant. Kevin, you're going to learn. It's Abra Schlecht, but uh, it, I did not want to <laughs> say something. I think if I say mein Mann, <laughs> I, 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 it's, it has a totally different meaning uh, uh, auf Deutsch. Uh, but I'm joined by the great, the one, the only, the singular, Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing fantastic. Kevin, how are you doing? I am about to turn 40. What? And there are nice round numbers in play this week because mm-hmm. this is episode number 50. <laughs> unbelievable 50 episodes of art of darkness crazy it's crazy it really is it in Mm -hmm. some ways doesn't seem like it but in other ways yeah it does yeah well no it doesn't seem like it to me but that's because i'm increasingly divorced from reality (laughs) that's a good that's a good way to go yeah yeah, sure yeah yeah Uh, you know i'm being how long have we been doing this show no idea (laughs) right it's like it's like god oh (laughs) <laughs> just keep keep doing the pod keep repeating yep. the pod uh right. yeah i feel like i'm being waterboarded by a combination of of young children uh software and twitter but i'm yeah. not i'm not leaving twitter i'm never leaving the bird website and by the way you can find us on the bird website at art of dark pod which brad runs and brad i, I say this frequently you're doing a great job with that Thanks, man. It's been a lot of fun. You know, uh, uh, yeah. And for folks who I know people find us from all different ways for people who uh, haven't come across the Twitter yet. And some people hate Twitter. You know, I love it. It all depends on how you use it. Um, I do post a lot of stuff there. There's like almost every day I post a little couple couple tweet thread about an artist who would be a great candidate for the show that has maybe something thematically related to an upcoming episode so those are sometimes fun and sometimes people really engage with those a lot so well um, and increasingly people are offering subjects to us yeah they're saying "Ooh, should you do this we do have some patreon tiers where if you subscribe at a certain level and you reach a certain amount of uh months you can outright call your shot and simply say look i want you to cover this uh dead historical figure i am i am obsessed with uh caligula i need yeah. an episode about caligula and we will be duty bound to do it because you've donated an x amount of dollars yeah. that and said we'll, yeah right now 
we I want to start by thanking our Patreon folks. We we really appreciate that. Every uh, Patreon subscriber gets the After Dark episodes, which we do every episode, an additional 30 minutes. We do a story, uh, and we're really starting to see a little bit of traction there. We we crunch some numbers, and we're we're in the top 1% of podcasts on uh, on Apple, and like the top 0.25 globally. So Pretty crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And we're and we're 50 episodes in. Uh, we're not, I don't, we're not boasting about it. It's, I kind of wanted to do this podcast to like waste my time and hang out with, hang out with my friend, Brad. There's a, there's a, there's a tweet that went around recently that said something like, uh, men invented golf so they could take walks together and (laughs) podcasts so they could have conversations. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Men men would rather, men would rather create a podcast empire than go to therapy or something like that. Can you imagine imagine if we just hung out and did this as like a book club without recording anything, what people would think about the two of us. Right. Right. That would be, that would be Gatto for sure. Uh, but yeah, duty bound to to thank our Patreon subscribers and also just to thank people generally, anyone who listens. There are lots of ways to help the show. We could we always could use more five star reviews. The yeah. algo loves those. Yep. Spotify, iTunes. Subscribe all... on YouTube too is mm-hmm. big for the algo. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, and, and you know, and if and tell people uh, about the show. We we've yep. covered See, now we've done 50 episodes, but we haven't done 50 subjects because we also do our darkroom episodes and, and yeah, recaps. I think, I think we're at like 30 core episodes. This might be the 31st core episode, maybe. Yeah. Well, in my uh, initial uh, sort of uh, German rampage at the beginning, my blitz at the beginning of the uh, <laughs> the episode here, uh, hints at the subject who we are covering today and who is that, Brad? I'm listening very closely for the, the pronunciation. Oh, man, you're making me nervous about the pronunciation here. <laughs> Ernst Jünger. Genau. Ah, we're going we're gonna, to right. we're gonna make it. Good. Yep. We won. Yeah, so, uh, <clears throat> Kevin, before we get into it, uh, our, our question that we ask every episode, what do you know about Mr. Jünger? Well, I believe he was a, a World War I hero. A uh, veteran of World War One, I. I know Storm of Steel. I've read some of this. Uh, I know he wrote a book called The Glass Bees, uh, and he's one of these. He's being somewhat reconstructed, and there's a renewed interest in him in certain corners of uh, uh, Twitter and uh, uh, other places online. Uh, I. I believe he, I mean, he lived to a ripe old age and he, he was, he was and and is pretty well respected despite uh, certain, shall we say, complications. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Right. That's what I know about Ants Junga. Yeah. That's all, that's all, that's all true. Um, uh, One thing I think, I hope uh, I'm, I'm trying to do this episode. There are a lot of Junga heads out there who, who know a lot about him. Um, I'm I'm tr- I'm hoping to make this a interesting experience for them, but I also want to do a thorough, you know, for for people who don't know who he is, I want this to be the go-to source to learn about this guy. He is 
everything you said is is right. He's being um, sort of, I don't even know if redeemed, rediscovered, I would say, broadly in the English speaking world in the last right. generation or so. Um, and we're going to we're going to get into all of that. Um, I digging through this material and exposing myself more and more to his thought and his writing and the broad reach of the things he talks about. I actually found myself a little um, frustrated with my own educational process, right? And not to say that this is about me. I mean, I've got a, you know, I've got multiple degrees in the humanities, right? And I've never heard of this guy. And to me, and the, he's they were all as they were all as, yeah, go they ahead. were all yeah. state schools, though, right? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but yes, but he's as important to me. He's as important as any writer in the 20th century, or should be. Um, and, and I think we're going to see why. And I think we're going to see that his perspective um, actually actually adds a lot of depth to our understanding of not only 20th century letters, but 20th century history itself. So I, I, I'm really excited to talk about this. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of jump into it. I, I completely dig it. I'm excited yeah. too. the format of this show for new listeners is that for each core episode, Brad will take a subject, educate me. And I will take a subject uh, in a different episode and educate Brad because we both went to state schools. Right. Uh, <laughs> this is a post-academic uh, podcast. If you, right. went, yeah, if you got a, a English degree or a degree from a state school and you feel like it was lacking, uh, join us as the journey of redeeming <laughs> ourselves. Right. Because we're we're this isn't off the cuff. Like I, I don't know this stuff off the cuff. This is hours of preparation and research. Right. So this is I, I did the homework. So maybe you don't have to. You can do it while you're driving around. Yeah. Right. And we we really do the homework. We get the books. And this is one of the reasons we ask for support at patreon.com slash art of dark pod. The first tier is three dollars. If you're listening to this podcast and you've got a $1,000 phone and a $100 a month plan. Hopefully yeah. you can chuck us three bucks, maybe go to the next tier and, and send us six bucks a month. We're building uh, an audience here. We're building a community. Uh, we have a telegram and we, and we, again, we do the after dark on every episode. What, what is the after dark going to oh, be about? Tease yeah. us. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Ernst Junge, World War One hero, uh, uh, After Dark is going to be about the time he dropped acid with Albert Hoffman. Whoa! Whoa! whoa. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I uh, am going to subscribe to the Patreon. I'm going to do it immediately after we re record. No, but if you want to hear that story, please subscribe. Yeah. We make it worth it. Uh, and and uh, we thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So, Yunga, uh, German soldier, author, philosopher, amateur entomologist. Uh, insect guy for people who don't know, uh, among other things, oh. hmm. uh, born on March 29th, 1895. Every once in a while, I check this when we do an episode. He was an Aries and for astrological people and Yunga was an astrological person. Hmm. Aries is the god of war. So this is completely appropriate, I would say, uh, astrologically, whether you buy into that kind of thing or not. Maybe it's just coincidence. He died on February the 17th of 1998. You heard that correctly. He lived from 1895 to 1998. Holy moly. <laughs> 102 years old, just what? shy of his 103rd birthday. You know what happened is Rammstein came out and killed him. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's the, he got the, the first Rammstein album and it just it blew his mind. <laughs> that sounds that's about right. The years are lining yeah. up. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah, so he was born, and, and this is this is interesting to kind of get a perspective of what was going on. He was born a German citizen, right, in an empire newly united by Bismarck's wars against France, Austria, and Denmark. This isn't World War One. This is this is wars that American education we don't even know anything about, honestly. Um, this was the year that the X-ray was invented, and the year that the Lumiere brothers showed the first film, that famous film of like just a train coming out of the screen. That was sure. that was the year he was born. The year he died was the year that Google incorporated. Okay, so uh, this is the kind of person we're talking uh, about. My right? head hurts. Insane, right? Um, now, in Jung's time, when he was born, this was a pretty could be seen as a fairly harmonious and prosperous time in 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 much of Europe. Um, there had been a sort of a balance had occurred. Nobody really quite understood yet how teetery that balance exactly was. Um, Jünger's father was uh, uh, Ernst Senior. Uh, he was a chemist and a pharmacist. And so they had a middle class, upper middle class lifestyle. He actually would sometime during um, our Ernst's life, uh, he would make a fortune potash, potash mining. Uh, uh, our what? Ernst, what's that? Potash? Potash. Yeah, it's a it's a coal product, basically, or it's, hmm. it's something that goes into the coal refining process or something. I don't actually know the exact thing. Right. There's different kinds of coal, essentially. So uh, but pota- potash might be uh, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you was, know me, uh, I'm going to have to look it up in the background. Yeah, you can you can do that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, our hero was the oldest of six kids, two of them dying in infancy. We, this is almost everybody we cover from, you know, this kind of era has a has a, a sibling who's passed far too early. Um, mm. And he's born in Heidelberg. Um, but raised further north in Hanover for people who have some reasonable German geography. Um, ultimately, he would survive two world wars, both by the skin of his teeth and write more than 50 books with only a handful of them being published in English. Um, and here's the thing. Here's one thing I, I need to say kind of and, and people who are familiar with him already are going to know this. Kevin, you know, on Twitter, every once in a while, there's a thread about why a conservative can't make art or why there's no good conservative art. Right, right. There are no conservative comedians like what? Yeah. (laughs) Comedy is art and you're complaining about all these conservative comedians and but yet no conservative can make art. Yes. Right. Yeah. Just send them a list to the Yunga Wikipedia page. Right. Uh-huh. He's an arch. He's an arch conservative. These, and we're going to get into more of what that means for him because it's, it's not that he votes for Republicans, right? It's, it's, it's a much. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Well, you just blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and to be entirely clear, no episode of Art of Darkness is an endorsement of a given no. figure. No. Uh, and uh, furthermore. We are a heterodox podcast. If you go back and look mm. at the subjects that we've covered and the guests we've had on, we're we'll talk to almost anybody. Right, a right. body of water. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's an old that an old that's an old Bill Hicks uh, joke, like which it, is yeah. he's, he's somebody we covered. That's true. Uh, so yes, thank you for yeah. thank you for making that clear. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes. I just wanted to, you know, as I read this, I thought, well, man, this guy is so sophisticated and so interesting. And 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 there's a whole anyway, we'll get there. And we're going to get to what all that means for him and for his work. He strikes me already 
and I assume you're going to deepen my understanding of this, but he strikes me already as a certain type of European man, which who, you know, is doesn't exist anymore and, and yes. can't quite exist anymore. The world is completely turned over. We live in a post-apocalypse of the world that Jünger was, was born into. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm going to give you a quote from his great novel, The Glass Bees. We're going to talk more about The Glass Bees later, but but I want to just give a quote. This is going to give us a sense of his style, his perspective, and, and that sort of thing. And it, it it maybe isn't, he's got 50 books. It's hard to pick a single passage, and there's going to be more quotes throughout the show. But let me just start with this. This is a quote from, from Yuma. All the systems which explain so precisely why the world is as it is and why it can never be otherwise have always called forth in me the same kind of uneasiness one has when face to face with the regulations displayed under the glaring lights of a prison cell. Even if one had been born in prison and had never seen the stars or seas or woods, one would instinctively know of timeless freedom and unlimited space. My evil star, however, had fated me to be born in times when only the sharply demarcated and precisely calculable, calculable were in fashion. And then he's, he's sort of pretending to be somebody himself. Of course, I am on the right, on the left, in the center. I descend from the monkey. I believe only what I see. The universe is going to explain at this or that speed. or Sorry, the universe is going to explode at this or that speed. We hear such remarks after the first words we exchange from people whom we have not we would have not have expected to introduce themselves as idiots. If one is unfortunate <laughs> enough to meet them again in five years, everything is different except for their authoritative and mostly brutal assuredness. Now they wear a different badge in their buttonhole and the universe now shrinks at such a speed that your hair stands on end. Okay, so he's, yeah, yeah. He would have been good on Twitter, the, I think. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Philip, Philip K. Dick, whom we covered mm -hmm. recently, talked about the Black Iron Prison. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Jung is seeing that and it's got a different perspective on it. But I think they would have found a lot of stuff to agree on, honestly. Right. And it sounds yeah. like they could have dropped acid together. Yeah, they could have. Yeah, they would have been, they would have had a good time. They would have had a good time, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Jung has a boy. We're going to get pretty quickly into his later life. But one thing I want to call very early, he had two primary interests, adventure novels and insects, right? And both of these, these are like, you can almost think of these as the two hemispheres of the Yunga brain, adventure and insects. And we have to think about those like metaphorically, right? At all levels. Mm. Um, now in 1911, he's uh, 16 years old or so, Yunga and his brother uh, Fritz, who's also a, a writer, um, not quite as renowned, but, but, uh, but a talented and intelligent guy nonetheless, they would join a movement called the Wandervogel. I might not be saying that right. <laughs> I think it would sound something like Wandervogel. Wandervogel. Okay. Yeah, See, the, this, the wandering think, birds. Yeah, right. Exactly. This mm -hmm. was a group of sort of, uh, I would call them like proto-hippies who protested hmm. industrialization, sort of coming modernism by hiking in the country and communing with nature, right? But they had a, they were sort of like the Boy Scouts, except they were self-guided, but then there was like strong Teutonic vibes and like German nationalism at the same time, right? So um, while doing this, which was a, which was a slightly, not to say scandalous, but was kind of a countercultural thing to do, right? At that time. What period are we in here right this now? This is uh, 1911. 1911. Okay, yeah, well, so, so we're a, coming right up on... 
Yeah. 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 He's a, he's a high schooler, right? He's 16 mm. years old, something like that. And he publishes a bit of writing, a piece of poetry that's in a Van der Vogel uh, magazine. Um, and he, uh, a, a couple things happen in this period, his sort of adolescence that I think are also informative for his entire perspective, his time in the Van der Vogel, the sinking of the Titanic, which happens in mm. 1912 at funnily enough on my birthday, 1912, uh, and in 1913, seeking adventure Junge joins flees and joins the french foreign legion <laughs> like he you do up, yeah he classic ends up being, yeah he ends up being dispatched to the desert in algeria and realizing he made a huge mistake and trying to escape <laughs> and being recaptured by the french for and finally his dad gets him out of it somehow in like a in a kind of did, obscure way pulling some favors or something did he yeah. speak french uh, I don't think he did at this time. He would eventually, but I don't think he did mm. at this time. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So he gets back. He passes his high. Uh, I think what they call the higher school examination, and then he's going to go to um, Kevin. Help me again. Leipzig University. Le- yeah, Leipzig. Okay. He yeah. was going to go, but then something happened. And I'm just going to read this from the Wikipedia page because it's it's the easiest summary. On August 1st, 1914, shortly after the start of World War I, Junge volunteered with the 73rd Infantry Regiment of the Hanoverian 19th Division, and after training was transported to the Champagne Front in December. He was wounded for the first time in April of 1915. While on convalescent leave, he took up a suggestion from his father to become an officer aspirant. Junge was commissioned a lieutenant uh, in November of 1915. As platoon leader, he gained a reputation for his combat exploits and initiative in, in offensive patrolling and reconnaissance. During the Battle of the Somme, near the obliterated remains of, the, of a village, his platoon took up a frontline position in a defile that had been shelled until it consisted of little more than a dip strewn with the rotting co- uh, corpses of predecessors. Um, uh, a little later, the platoon was relieved, but Junga was wounded by shrapnel in the rest area of Combles and hospitalized. His platoon reoccupied the position on the eve of uh, the Battle of Goulemont and was obliterated in a British offensive. So he would, at one point during this, he was injured, taken off, and when he came back, his entire platoon had been destroyed. Everybody's gone. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, He was wounded for the third time in November of 16th and awarded the Iron Cross First Class in January of 1917. Uh, In the spring of 1917, he was promoted to the command of the 7th Company, Company and stationed at Cambry. Uh, transferred to Langemark in July. Junger's actions against the advancing British include forcing retreating soldiers to join his resistance line at gunpoint. He arranged the evacuation <laughs> of his brother Fritz, who had been wounded in the battle uh, uh, in the Battle of Cambrai. Cambrai. Uh, Junger sustained two wounds by a bullet passing through his helmet at the back of the head and another by a shell fragment on the forehead. He was awarded the House Order of Hohenzollern, I'm probably Hohenzollern. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. I won't keep I won't keep correcting you because my my pronunciation is not perfect either. Sure, sure. Mine's quite bad. Um, (laughs) While while advancing to take up positions just before Ludendorff's operation, Michelle on uh in March of 1918, Junga was forced to call halt after the guides lost their way, and while bunched together, half of his company men were lost to a direct hit from artillery. Junga himself survived and led the survivors as part of a successful advance, but was wounded twice toward the end of the action, being shot in the chest and less seriously in the head. After convalescing, he returned to his regiment in June, where where, uh, widespread feeling had uh, taken place. 
that Germany, uh, that sorry, that victory for Germany was now impossible. So he's fighting all through this, getting blown up and shot and splinters and everybody, you know, insanity, just insanity. What right? we need to do to get the kids into Junger early is yeah, we need to yeah. make a game of operation. Uh, with that's that's modeled after him uh it's a metal out of his body yeah (laughs) right oh my god now here's one thing this is the this is the thing so it's an insane experience and it's he encapsulates it in storm of steel which is a book that came out shortly after the war it was a huge hit um is i've read you know i've read more than most i've read more uh experiences of world war one than, than probably the average bear and i will say that this is it if not the best it's in the running for the best it's it's an amazing it's an amazing book and i'm going to read you a couple things from it just to give you a sense of Junga's writing and also the experience that he had because it's unrelenting and unbelievably intense what this guy went through right so i'm just going to kind of skip around a couple parts that i think will give you a, fl- a taste for not only what this book was like, but what the experience was like and what Jung is like. Um, he's talking about the war here, obviously. The whole thing should be pictured as a huge, ostensibly inert installation, a secret hive of in- industry and watchfulness, where within a few seconds of an alarm being sounded, every man is at his post. But one shouldn't have too romantic an idea of the atmosphere. There's a, there is a certain prevailing torpor that proximity to the earth seems to engender. Moving on. Mm. Days in the trenches begin at dusk. At seven o'clock, someone from my platoon comes in to wake me from my afternoon nap, which, with a view to night duty, I like to have. I buckle on my boat. Uh, I buckle on my belt, stick a light pistol in it and some bombs, and leave my more or less cozy dugout. As I walk through the by now f- highly familiar sector, I automatically check that the sentries are all in position. The password is given in low tones. By now, it is nighttime, and the first silvery flares climb aloft while peeled eyes scrutinize no man's land. A rat skitters about among the tin cans thrown over the ramparts. Another joins it with a squeak, and before long the whole place is swarming with the lithe shapes emerging from their holes in ruined village basements or among the shot-up bomb shelters. Hunting rats is a much-loved change from the tedium of sentry duty. Moving on again. As Well, as you're reading this, I Mm -hmm. am just, just struck by, without mentioning the, the odors, and the vibe, I'm picking up all of it. I, I don't know quite how, but it yeah. is the, the language is putting me there. And you just think, my God, it must have, have stank. Oh, yeah. And he does talk men, about that at times, but yes. Mm, yeah. The men must have stank. And what were they what were they eating? They must have all been hungry and exhausted and shooting at each other yeah yeah he will he will go on a a passage about a battle and it's it sounds so and it's it's more intense than movies about war you've seen right just in terms of the act and at the end he'd be like and then we were very tired like yeah i know you were (laughs) like i was my heart still race i'm tired reading this yeah right right oh my god we are so so decadent our generation of americans we we gripe a lot but man yeah we are we are living in a decadent age. It's true. And you see it reading this too. It's like, whew. let me give you a couple more. And then we're going to talk some more about his, some more things about World War One and, and his experience there. Um, at night, the landscape ep- emanates a curious cold, a sort of emotional cold. 
makes you start to shiver when you cross an unoccupied part of the trench that is reserved for centuries. And if you cross the wire entanglements and set foot in no man's land, the shivering intensifies to a faint teeth rattling unease. The novelists haven't done justice to this teeth chattering. There's nothing dramatic about it. It's more like having a feeble electric current applied to you. Most of the time, you're just as unaware of it as you are of talking in your sleep at night. And for another thing, it stops the moment actually, and it, it stops the moment anything actually happens. One more little bit. Once you, uh, often you can hear the enemy working on his wire entanglements. They're in trenches. Sometimes they're fairly close to each other, right? Yeah, right. Then you empty your magazine in his direction, not only because those are the standing instructions, but also because you feel some pleasure as you do it. Let them feel the pressure for a change. Who knows, perhaps you even managed to hit one of them. We too go on spooling wire most nights and take a lot of casualties. Then we curse those mean British bastards. On some sectors of the line, say at the sap heads, um, this is something like a lookout point or something within the trench. Um, the sentries are barely 30 yards apart. Here you sometimes get personally acquainted with your opposite number. You get to know Tommy or Fritz or Wil Wilhelm by his cough or his whistle or his singing voice. Shouts are exchanged often with an edge of rough humor. Hey, Tommy, you still there? Yep. Then get your head down. I'm about to start shooting at you. Right? They're, 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 they're like, sometimes they can just poke their head up and see each other. Right? Or sometimes you literally can hear them working, digging, digging trench right, right over there. Right? Uh, so kind of a crazy, crazy thing. Now, um, in that whole spiel I read, I, I, I know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the, the outline of Jung's time in World War I didn't really stick with people, but I wanted to just give you a kind of a zoomed out scope of his duration. I mean, he's there for years, injured many, 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 many times. But we want to talk about the, the word, sorry, you pronounced the yeah. word spiel perfectly. <laughs> You're a natural. That's a, that's You're already English learning. By now. <laughs> Nine. We, stole, we stole that one. We stole well, that that's it. Yeah. Well, yeah. what, okay. What is English? Yeah. <laughs> it's all, every word in it stolen, right? Um, uh, so one, but one big thing, that big historical event that I wanted to talk about that he was involved in is the battle of song of the Psalm, right? Um, now he's injured. He's injured there. He's injured at a bunch of other places. But the Battle of the Somme is interesting to me. It, there, it's talked about in detail on Dan Carlin's Hardcore History uh, show, and we're not gonna we're not giving here to give you a, a history of World War One. It would be a five hour podcast, and we would have barely scratched the surface. And if but you I, haven't listened to Hardcore History's World War One series, you don't pause this. Don't stop yeah. this. Uh, yeah. Finish this, but definitely um, make your good. way to that series. Yeah, it's very good. Um, now, so, but I want to talk about this battle a little bit for a couple of reasons. One is, I think this is where the 20th century was born. That's kind of a weird statement to make, but I think there's something to it. And, and maybe, maybe you'll somewhat agree with me. Now, one thing is we need to think about a battle sounds like two competing forces coming together and then kind of fighting until it's over. It lasts a couple hours, it lasts a day, something like that. That's, I think, how we tend to imagine what a quote-unquote battle is. That's not what the Battle of the Somme is. This thing lasts from July 1st to November 18th of 1916. The British and the French on one side, and excuse me, and the, and the Germans on the other time, on the other side. In the course of, and it's trench warfare, they're digging trenches, right? And they're constantly trying to steal ground from each other. Um, over the course of this battle, there are more than 3 million uh, men involved. 1 million of these men were killed or injured. 
One in three were killed or injured in the Battle of the uh, Somme. A million? A million. Supposedly, Whoa. and I don't have this number in front of me, I think this is right. Supposedly 40,000 British in the first week were killed. That is that is remarkable. It's unbelievable. It's one of the largest battles. Time, men involved, casualties. It's it's where where are you getting that number from? The forty thousand, I I didn't actually write down, but I came across it in a YouTube video. Or the, something. the the million number. Where are you? Oh, that, that is from? that is straight from Wikipedia. What? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Wow. That's that's a uh, that's a shock. That's yes. uh, wild. Are yes. we, you're, you're sure that's not deaths and casualties? No, it is. Yeah, killed and injured is one million. Oh, killed and yeah. injured is one million. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So All right. I don't know if how many died. Throwing me off. Uh, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Potash includes various. <laughs> hang on, hang yeah. on. Includes various mined and manufactured salts that contain potassium in water soluble form. The name derives from pot ash, plant oh, okay. ashes, or wood ash soaked in water in a pot. The primary means of manufacturing potash before the industrial era. Uh, the word potassium is derived from potash. Potash is produced worldwide in amounts exceeding 90 million tons per year, with Canada being the largest producer, mostly for use in fertilizer. Ah. Speaking of fertilizer, let's go back to the bottom Battle of the Somme. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was totally inappropriate. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I, that was the worst segue in the history of the show. <laughs> I, I apologize. That was that was awful. But I'm just I am just like that. That number is just. I oh. hate I hate it so much. Oh, you can't. Yeah, I, I'm going to read. Yeah. And they were fighting over inches of. Oh, inch. Yeah. Yes. Dirt. There was. This is the thing. Nobody won the Battle of the Somme. You know what I mean? With those mm. kinds of numbers, you're not winning. You might have had a slight right. strategic advantage at the end of it, but you didn't win. Like, I mean, it, it's not at this point. You're yeah. you're you're talking about mutual ethnic cleansing. You're you're wiping out your your young men mm -hmm. at, at mm -hmm. scale. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. what a what a fool's errand. Yeah. What a disaster. Yeah. And let Make me podcasts, not war. Yeah, for real. For real. No more brother wars, man. Yeah, really. Now, uh so I want to give you a couple things. And I made this claim about this being where the 20th century was born. And I know it sounds kind of insane, but a million men died. Okay, here are some of the people who fought in this, individual people. Adolf Hitler was on the ground there. The composer Ralph Vaughn Williams was on the ground there. Wait, who? Who was there? Who was the first guy? Adolf Hitler. Oh, you, right, you right, know, right. You might know who he is. Right, right, yeah. right. And of course, you know, there's an ongoing <laughs> uh, thing in the show here where when we finally have had enough uh, when we're ready to move on, when we're we're sick of the the dark side, and we want to do I don't know what like like a golf podcast or right. something, <laughs> yeah. we will drop our Adolf Hitler episode and vanish like Kaiser Soze. Uh, yeah, we'll resume our government names, <laughs> which no one knows. <laughs> All right, <and> correct. We'll... <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, but interesting. Go yeah, on. Yeah, so Adolf Hitler was there. The composer Ralph Vaughn Williams, and these are just people who could be you know art of dark people right subjects uh jr jr R. tolkien served in the battle of the psalm uh sigrid 
uh, Sassoon, who is a very famous war poet at the time, is lesser known now. Robert Graves, the author of I, Claudius and the White Goddess. Other writers that I, I don't really know that well, like David Jones and Isaac Rosenberg. Also, Anne Frank's father fought there. So it's just a very there's something and they're all traumatized by it. I know we throw that word trauma around really easily now, but but these men were on some level traumatized and or radicalized by all of this. Right. And so you can see the 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 the, his, the historical sort of efflorescence coming out right. of this. Right. right. You mm. were radicalized by Frogonons on Gab. Right. Yeah, Adolf and company, and J and Tolkien, and all of these yeah. folks were radicalized by the Battle of the Somme. You right. are not the same, right? It's very, very, very different, right? Um, yeah. So let me give you a little bit of little. Let me give you a little bit um, from Junga about this. Um, he's talking about uh, at this moment where he's sitting and he's watching some of the men at the Somme, observing them silently cutting their way through the barbed wire, and he's they're 18, 19, 20 years old, right? digging storm steps, comparing their luminescent watches and orienting themselves towards north by the star, I realize this is the new man, the stormtrooper, the elite of Central Europe, a whole new race, cunning, strong, and filled with will. What reveals itself here as a vision will tomorrow be the axis around which life revolves still faster and faster. This war is the forge in which the world will be hammered into new borders and new communities. So Junger thought saw it that way, right? So, um, but let me give you some more, a little bit more Junger on just trench warfare, etc. Um, I'm reading here from uh, these are some excerpts. He has so many books that I couldn't read all of his books, um, and there's not that much in terms of uh, biographical stuff printed in English. But um, there's this book by this uh, Swede named Lennart Svensson called A Portrait. Uh, and it's pretty good. And one thing that it does have is it has, um, it has excerpts from some of the books, but I also, you know, I have my storm of steel here as well, which uh, is a strongly recommended reading. Um, let me give you a couple things just about trench warfare, uh, in general from a chapter called daily life in the trenches from storm of steel, October, 1915, standing at dawn on the fire step opposite our dugout next to the sentry when a rifle bullet ripped through his forage cap without harming a hair of his head. Um, at the same time, two pioneers were wounded on the wires. One had a ricochet through both legs, the other a ball through his ear. O 19 October. The middle platoon section of trench was attacked with six-inch shells. One man was hurled against a post by the blast so hard that he sustained serious internal injuries and a splinter of wood punctured the artery in his arm. In the early morning fog, as we were repairing our wires on the right, we came upon a French corpse that must have been there for many months. That night, two men were wounded while unspooling wire. Gutschmidt was shot in both hands and one thigh. Schaefer took a bullet to the knee. October 30th, following a torrential downpour in the night, all the traverses came down and formed a gray sludgy porridge with the rain, tr turning the trench into a deep swamp. Our only consolation was that the British were just as badly off as we were because we could see them bailing out for all they were worth. Since their position had a little more elevation than theirs, we even managed to pump our excess their way. Also, we used rifles with telescopic sights on them, telescopic sights. The crumbled trench walls exposed a line of bodies left there from the previous autumn's fighting. Right. So it's like becoming over time. It becomes almost like an archaeological thing. He talks at one point about so. 
you know, you think of shelling uh, this warfare, you're getting shot and you're getting blown up. But he would talk sometimes about when a shell drops, a big enough artillery shell, it will cast dirt up and it will land on you. And that's it. You're buried now. And nobody tries to, there's no time to recover you. You're, that's where you, that's where you rest forever. And he would talk about sometimes where this would happen and then they would advance again and they would retake that territory. And you'd have in some places one or two or three layers of people underneath you. Right. And then you would dig new trench and you would find the bodies, you know, of your countrymen from, you know, six months ago or whatever. Right. It becomes this like total charnel house of, of, and it's it's kind of hard to it's hard for us to even get our head around. And I have you know, I'm, I'm circling stuff on every page practically in Storm of Steel. Okay, and yeah. so what I'm expecting to take from this episode, episode number fifty of Art of Darkness, mm-hmm. artofdarkpod.com, uh, is uh, I want to understand why World War One happened. I assume you're going to tell me. <laughs> I am not going to tell you. <laughs> I am a student of history. To a, a degree level, I have a degree in history. Uh, not that it not that it counts for much, uh, but uh, I, nobody's ever given me a straight answer. I think I think that's almost. I don't think anybody can really explain it. Not in a way that says. Not, not in a way that makes you go, "Oh yeah, I can see why they did it now." Like it's never. It's almost satisfactory. like humans didn't do world war one world war one did humans is how it almost feels it's just it was like a force that was coiling and it and it rose up and the alliances had to be honored and there was this old sense of of honor Mm -hmm. and duty and nationalism and damn it we're gonna go get jerry we can't we can't allow this and you know yeah awful yeah. And so that's the thing. I think looking back, I think it's easy for people who were raised on the History Channel and that sort of thing to look back at World War II and very easily, you know, understand the good and the bad. Right. Yeah. The, the Germans were pure evil. Right. Exactly. That's it. That's it. But, but you can't translate that back to World War One. Right? right. In World yeah, War One, you yeah, pass through it. And, yeah. and not, you know, you pass through some kind of funhouse mirror and none of it makes sense to us now. From our right. from our POV POV in World War One. Um, let me just but, read and, a, if I oh, if I may. Wasn't the the style of warfare uh, in World War One kind of developed in the the American Civil War? There was a certain they were there referencing back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was some of that. That this is what this is the thing that's so kind of complicated and 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 tricky for the men involved to get their hands around is there is the the civil war kind of tactics and and certainly 19th century warfare tactics were what were in play and nobody really knew what to do with in the face of the increasing mechanization right so the battle of the Somme, you see the first tank rolled into battle nobody knows what to do about a tank like what do you what do you like right what do you do? He, uh, you at one point talks about um, when they'd be crossing parts of the battlefield and they'd see disabled tanks, they'd see disabled British tanks. He would take his men over to him and they would like study them. Like, where do you, where do you throw a grenade on this thing? Is there some like, cause these things are destroying us. Like, is there something we can, and they, so it would be like finding an animal and you're like, well, it's got really sharp teeth on it. You know, it's literally that level of it's like, it's almost like a medieval story of, uh, of knights uh, mm-hmm. meeting a dragon. 
it has right. that level yeah yeah of yeah strangeness it, yeah. yeah and so there's very so it's very surreal and you know you see like there are times where literally and i'm not going to read it because we could spend the whole time talking about just storm of steel and this guy lived to be 102 we want to cover other stuff too i mean you'll see a, there's a part where Junger describes how he invented a means of storming a trench and you read it and it doesn't sound that like it doesn't sound like anything special really but like you have to realize like they never fought in trench warfare before nobody nobody knew what to do you know like um and there was a lot of and as it, as time wore on and the command is getting wiped out it becomes a lot more like you got to just do whatever you can do right you, you know sometimes like many battles were initiated because somebody got drunk on brandy and just decided that they had enough and they started storming off and people followed behind them you know it was ins- it was there were times it's pretty insane um you know you forcing these young men into these situations into hell into into hell hell, literally into hell they're sleeping in water you know just like you know knee deep in water they're sleeping in little dugouts shells falling on them constantly you know he has these passages where he says and then later he died like literally he'll be talking about he was having a conversation with a friend of his and oh uh, you know schmidt didn't make it through the day right just uh. and so you know i think part of this um, and I'm going to read a couple more parts from Storm of Steel because there's a lot more to talk about, but but it's just a fascinating period. And he had a fascinating experience. There's um, a thing, the fact that he survived and he had many injuries, right? The fact that he survived to him began to feel like it wasn't a coincidence. And now he didn't aggrandize himself to that. It wasn't, I'm Yunga, I'm so great. God's protecting me. It's like, why am I not dying? Right? Like, how am I still here? This, none of the, and he will have a number of incidents where it's like one second difference and he would have been dead. There's a point at the end, very, very near the end of the war where he's the, the most severely injured he gets the entire time. He's being carried by a guy. The guy gets shot and dies under him while he's carrying him. Junger falls on him. He's literally so injured he can't get up. Another guy picks him up and carry and carries him. Right. So just unbelievable. And that was after like a day of absolute chaos. Just just and so I can't I'm gonna give, let me read a couple more things just so we just so we got this right. Coming attractions, folks, if we don't get things together here, I'm afraid to say <laughs> I think it might be time to look at history so we don't end up repeating it. We're not going to end up in trenches, per se, oh but uh, uh, I should hope not. Yeah, this is uh, this is Jungian fear and excitement from storm of steel these moments of nocturnal prowling leave an indelible oppression impression sorry eyes and ears are tense to the maximum the rustling approach of strange feet in the tall grass is an unutterably menacing thing your breath comes in shallow bursts you have to force yourself to stifle any panting or wheezing there's a little mechanical click as the safety catch of your pistol is taken off the sound cuts through straight through your nerves your teeth are grinding on the fuse pin of the hand grenade The encounter will be short and murderous. You tremble with two contradictory impulses, the heightened awareness of the huntsman and the terror of the quarry. You are a world to yourself, saturated with the appalling aura of the savage landscape. Okay, that's one bit. They're at at war with the earth as well. They're at war with with the earth. Falling on them, it's shooting up. And and this is the other thing. 
Mm. Part of it's so much of it's happening like mortar. It doesn't even always feel like you're fighting humans, right? It it it, it's, it feels like you're fighting. Um, it, it feels like you're fighting a random number generator almost. You know what I mean? Because a shell could just land on your head at any second. It's sort of like Kafka's terror come to life. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with, Wait, fire, and, with fireworks, right? And, and right, and yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and other guys shooting back at you who want you dead as much mm -hmm. as you want them dead or more. Tolkien, by the way, is going to be a big air episode. That yeah. You've just brought that up, so that that good. that's going to be a good one. Yeah, here's one uh, about one one of the things he gets injured, and this is a very, I think, a kind of a Kafka esque of moment. One of the injuries that he sustains. No sooner was I standing with them uh, than there was a sharp report outside the front door. He's inside this little house that had been partly demolished, um, or sorry, inside this house he was partly demolished. There was a sharp report outside the front door, and in the same moment, I felt a piercing blow low down on my left calf. With the immoral, uh, memorial uh, warrior's refrain, I've been hit, I took off, pipe of shag tobacco in my mouth, down the stairs. <laughs> Quickly, someone brought light, and the thing was examined. As ever in these affairs, I had someone tell me about it while I stared at the ceiling in case it wasn't a pretty sight. There was a jagged hole in my putties, out of which a fine spray of blood ran down to the floor. On the opposite side of the leg, uh, there was the round bulge of a shrapnel ball under the skin. The diagnosis was straightforward enough. A typical ticket home. Nothing very bad, but nothing too light either. Admittedly, I'd left it to the latest possible moment to get a puncture if I wasn't to miss the bus to Germany. But there was something deeply improbable about that hit. Because the shrapnel had burst on the ground on the other side of the brick wall that surrounded the courtyard. A shell had previously knocked a little round hole in this wall, and a tub with an oleander plant stood in front of it. The ball must therefore have gone therefore have gone through the shell hole, then through the oleander's leaves, crossed the yard and the open door, and of the many legs in front of it, had picked precisely this one of mine. Right. So there's this sense of just like at any moment the landscape could just kill you. Mm. Right. It's not, it's not even about, in some senses, it's not even about another person out there that it's you personally engaged with. It's yeah. Yeah. There's there's no honor. There's no honor. There, there's yeah there's no chivalry in in any of this most not, of the time really. there's not yeah, yeah most of the right. time there's not there is heroism yeah. uh you you pick your your comrade up uh mm -hmm. your your fellow up uh yeah if i want right. to say there, the word comrade but right no no, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah there is that and yeah. there are mm -hmm. there are examples of them really looking out for each other like he went to great lengths at one point to make sure his brother his younger brother younger was in a command position at this point and he made sure his younger brother who'd been injured got out and his younger brother was like on death's door and Yunga like went through a lot to make sure that he got off the battlefield and he helped a lot of other guys out too but there are other cases there's one and I, i'm not even gonna bother reading i'll just describe it to you where he talks about an english soldier who got into their trench and went around and beat six or eight different german centuries to death didn't shoot him apparently didn't have a gun like beat them like snuck up behind them and it's it's bullets firing and a lot of noise so he's sneaking up behind each one beating them to death with a rifle butt and then moving to the next one, doing it again, and then getting out of the trench and going back to his side. And Jung is like kind of impressed by it. He's like, "Well, dang, like, <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, like, like, like to have a schnapps with that guy, right, right." Yeah. You know, and you don't see any hatred 
on Jung's side for the other people. He occasionally gets caught up in a kind of a bloodlust sort of thing. Like he's not shy about saying like, and I was excited to kill the, to, to start killing people. He will say almost that exactly, but there's no personal hatred for the French or the English. It's not, he doesn't hate France. He doesn't hate England. He's just been thrown into this situation. And, and most of the, the, the violent tendency comes out of the fact that, um, I've been put into this situation, which is hell. And the only way for me to get out of it is if you're all dead. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, if enough of you die that your side gives up. We can and, go home. Uh, me and my friends can go right, home. Right, right. And so it, it's like, it's at that kind of primal. There's, this isn't politics. Do, where do we you know, no. Do we know, know the nationality of the of the British soldier who was uh, doing the Oh, no, I'm not damage. sure. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, right. there is there is stories too. Like, you get Yunga personally shoots a lot of people in this book. <laughs> like it's not, he's not, he's not like, he's not like avoiding it, like dodging it. He's like, yeah, there was a guy and he was, you know, he was trapped in a hole and he wouldn't surrender. So we threw a bunch of grenades in there. There was some this guys guy. that came out. There, there was yeah. some guys that came out. This one platoon of guys came out and, and they were, um, they were surrendering, but somebody else started shooting at us. So we just shot everybody. This guy you know what makes, I mean? uh, makes Hemingway look like a pussy. Kind of. <laughs> Like, Yunga was the real. This is deal, hardcore. Man. Yeah, all Hemingway did was get blown up and and save some guys in uh, yeah. in Italy, and then he went home and yeah. and wrote about it. Wrote a lot yeah. about it. This so is a little it's, different. It's not. It's nonstop. Yunga. It, this whole book. There's no plot to Storm of Steel. It's not. It, it's literally well, there, just there was battle, no plot battle, to World battle, War One. Exactly. World War One didn't have a plot. That's right. the whole problem. It, it doesn't even make any sense. It's just battle, 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 recover for a few minutes, battle. It, it's insane. But let me give you one little bit from just towards the end. This won't spoil it because it's such it's such worth a read. It's so good. Um, this is the very end of Storm of Steel. During the endless hours, flat on your back. So he's injured, right? He gets injured. And I think basically World War One ends while he's uh, laid up during the endless hours flat on your back you try to distract yourself to pass the time once i reckoned up my wounds leaving out trifles such as ricochets and grazes i was hit at least 14 times these being five bullets two splinter uh two shell splinters one shrapnel ball four hand grenade splinters and two bullet splinters which with entry and exit wounds left me with an even 20 scars in the course of this war where so much of the firing was done blindly into empty space, I still managed to get myself targeted no fewer than 11 times. I felt every justification, therefore, in donning the gold wound stripes which arrived for me one day. So he is, honors are heaped upon Junger, right? And this is the thing. He's, he's part of, partially you get these honors because you survived, right? Sure. It's just the fact that you made it to the end at all. But he gets something <laughs> called um, the uh, yeah. le, uh, the poor de merit, which is given to him by the Kaiser. Um, and I think there was only something like he was a uh, he was an NCO, a non commissioned officer. I think is the term for that. I think there was only like nine NCOs that got this. It's a ma- is a major award in the in the in the German military. Um, and so he's he's as, about as decorated as you can be by the end of World War One. And he has these. Uh, uh, he's 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 taken a he's taken a careful notes and a diary and a 
throughout the entire experience and he's got this at the end and there's actually a little bit of a a little bit of an escapade to make sure that he walks out of the war he almost loses them at one point uh, but he does make it out of the war with all of his diaries um but the war ends and he, he started the war he was 22 he's ba- barely even a college student and he comes out and he's a war hero but he doesn't he hasn't what is he what is he going to do now right well the one thing is first thing he's got to do is he's got to try to not get an opium addiction because he's in a lot of pain still and he's 20 20 scars and all of them serious um by our standards um and also there's not only that but he's on the losing side and so now what Ooh. happens not only not only politically but job prospects you know spiritually and psychologically you went through all this and you lost kind of thing right um so he's uh there's these leftist uprisings at one point he's under house arrest by a bunch of leftists who've like taken taken power for a minute um he does uh he does get put in uh, he becomes an officer in the in the reserves um and this means that his job is basically like keeping track of like smuggling efforts he's sort of like a cop almost and it's not very exciting or you know satisfying in any way but in 1920 it kind of gets out that he's been he's got this journal he's been doing some writing he's ordered to berlin and he's tasked to write a new infantry handbook right um because he's he basically he was on the forefront of the innovation of infantry warfare, right? So he knows this stuff as well as anybody out there right now. And he gets, he gets conscripted to write this handbook. Um, at the same time, the military, somebody in the military finds out that he's got the war journals and he's encouraged to write, uh, to have Storm of Steel published. Um, I mean, it's basically a piece of propaganda in a certain, in a certain way, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of war writing, it, it kind of is. It depicts heroism and you got to demoralize people that lost the war and they get to sure. see something about, you know, their boys sure. laid it on the line, you know. Um, right. But being in Berlin as opposed to Hanover when he, where he grew up, because he's only lived in Hanover and the trenches, right? Um, <laughs> well, wait, and Algeria briefly. Oh, and Algeria briefly, right? <laughs> Running from the French Foreign Legion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, fun. Yeah, so he starts to get exposed to like some of the German arts. I mean, Berlin is like, I think the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at this time. It's a pretty big, ma- major place to be. There's a lot uh, in happening. The, in the 20s, yeah. uh, whoa doggy. Yeah, yeah that's one yeah. of the, when they ask you, Ooh, where would you like to... Uh, you know, if you could reincarnate and come back at any time or travel at any time, like boy, Berlin in the twenties and the thirties would be fascinating. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And so he was, he was there for a lot of that. Um, and he, they put out Storm of Steel, and it's popular. Like it's be great. It, it's a slow to start, but by the mid twenties, it's kind of a big deal. Storm of Steel. Um, a lot of people are reading it. He leaves the military briefly to go back to the University of Leipzig, uh, study zoology and philosophy. Never graduates. Gets married to this uh, girl from Hanover, uh, Greth von Jensen. She would give birth to uh, both of his sons. Um, his first son, I think, is born in 1926, I want to say. Um, Junge didn't last long in academia. He found it kind of alienating. Um, he found the, it wasn't the way that he wanted to study. And we're going to get more into how his mind worked. Um, 
he found the military to be boring, right? But he did have now this burgeoning reputation as a writer. So he wrote some other books, one called uh, War as an Inner Experience, which is uh, pretty interesting if anybody wants to delve into that. Another one called Cops uh, 125, which is about a particular battle that he does talk about in Storm of Steel. And another one called Sturm. These are all basically Sturm. Sturm. Yeah, these are basically Storm, war, right? These are basically war writing. Yeah, these are warm writing, war writing capitalizing on his success with storm of steel um, and you know he's still a young man 1926 I, when his son born uh, son's born I, he's 30 yeah i gotta point out that uh the german title of storm of steel and the first edition cover is dynamite it looks cool oh, really? as hell yeah it's that. in stahlgewitten which means it means in steel thunderstorms oh. so there's no the word storm is not or, or, I mean, like the pure word storm, Sturm mm-hmm. is not in there. It's Stalgavitten, which means steel thunder, thunderstorms. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a portmanteau. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, which German he, yeah. does is commonly done in German language, right? Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. had to pause for that. Yeah, get, get no, your hands on. Yeah, check out the, the cover on, on Wikipedia of the first edition, just like, the font and everything and and the the color and oh just very so cool. interesting yeah very cool mm. very cool so now Junga, 1920s famous writer drops out of college married wife trying to figure out what he's going to do sort of with his life right um yeah he's making he's having some success as a writer so you know he's kind of sticking with that but he does do a bit of traveling and he would travel throughout his life whenever he could in the 1930s he actually goes to brazil of all places which i thought was huh. pretty interesting and there he encounters some German monks, which uh, and, and talks with them for a while, meets with them for a while. And he gets to understand religion in a way that he hadn't before. He wasn't a particularly religious person uh, to this point. And, and it wasn't a religious um, revelation in that he was like, oh, OK, now I'm a monk in Brazil. It was he realized that there's something foundational to all religions that are true, right? They've all they're at some level, they've all made their attempts at the at the cosmic truth, right? It doesn't mean that they're all uh, they're all the same. They're all perfectly good, not necessarily, but they're all there's something so true that everybody throughout history has tried to find it through religion. And he realizes at this point that atheism for him to him is a kind of a mental illness or a vice. And that it's a it's a it's a symptom of modernity, and, and and this is the beginnings of his turn away from modernity. Because at this time in the twenties, he's still sort of enamored with technology. It's a very exciting time, right? All these new inventions are coming. It's whiz bang. It's radio. It's all, and he's very interested in all of that. But he would eventually turn his back on all of that. And we're going to get but, to it because I think Fedora neckbeards wrecked. Right. <laughs> yeah. You guys, you guys need therapy, right? You're, right, right, right. Like, I'm not going to have an argument with you. Yeah. You people are deranged. Yeah. People would rather disbelieve in an all knowing, all loving, all powerful creator rather than go to go therapy. To th- right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> it's true. Right. Um, so now, Junga, 1930s, Berlin, nothing really interesting is happening in the historical stage, right? I mean, nothing's coming, nothing's, it's a very boring time. Uh, obviously, that's not the case. Um, Junga would find himself 
located within something that we can loosely call the conservative revolution in Germany. Now, we think of conservatives as it's a bunch of, like we were saying earlier, it's not just a bunch of people that vote for Republicans. That's not really what it was. There were many aspects to this movement. There were what we would think of as leftist movements within this movement or, or leftist branches of this movement. There were obviously branches on the right. There were varying degrees of militancy. Yeah. Socialist conservatives. Right. Which right. would later appear. Well, we can we can. Yeah. We'll just hang out. <laughs> yeah. We'll it's wait. Not, it, right. It's coming. We know it we coming. know it's coming. Mm. It is coming. Yeah. And, and these are it's all very complicated. And we're not trying to capture the entire thing. What we're trying to we're trying to be able to see Junga there. Right. And understand where he's kind of coming from. He would be certainly on the right in this movement, in the conservative revolution. Um also, he's not a pacifist. He's on the militant side, right? He's willing, if the cause is right, he's willing to pick up a gun, right? That's he, that's you know, such an interesting it again. Yeah, fact of character that mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been turned off or turned away by this experience. That, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, he still thought there was stuff worth fighting for. He was very anti-Weimar. Uh, he was, but he's also anti-bourgeois, right? And he's anti-Versailles. Like to him... He would change and he would evolve politically over time, but he thought the signing of the the Treaty of Versailles was a travesty. It was many, a, it, right. many did, and many right. historians look back and say it was a terrible, terrible mistake, which led to uh, lots of uh, Oscar-winning movies. Right, 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 right. Um, but what we don't see in all of this is we don't see a trace of anti-Semitism. Jung is just not an anti-Semite in any real way. There's no, you really can't point to anything that he said that would be construed that way, to be honest. So um, he's a nationalist. He's a German nationalist. But out of this conservative revolution, the Nazis come out of a different arm of it than Jung occupied. They come out from the what you'd call well, the they, Volkish arm. Well, it wasn't uh, national socialism more centered in Bavaria? Over, yeah, over I think Berlin. Geo- so I think it's right. yeah, geographically that's... it's different, right? It's to the north. And and I think Yunga might have even thought of them as being a little bit hillbilly-ish, slightly. Mm. He wouldn't have used that word, but it was more about the mm. Volkish. It was nationalism yeah. for a nation that Yunga didn't quite recognize. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and so uh so yeah, so I just wanted to kind of locate him At every end, of could. course, Volkish, you know, it means folkish like yeah, like right. of the folk every right. time i hear one of these politicians like obama say folks all these other folks every time i hear that i just a little part of me just kind of grind <laughs> my teeth and just kind of go wow what a word what a word <laughs> right you're not fooling right. that's all folks right right <clears throat> right 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 now yeah so this is the thing about you so not a nazi we're going to get more into that not a nazi not an anti-semite but a fascist. I think it's fair to say he was a fascist. He was an elitist. He didn't believe in democracy. He thinks democracy, and we're going to get more into that. Democracy is not a valid or a viable approach to governance. He sounds, he sounds like a lot of our mutuals on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of these folks out there. Now, yeah, right? they're out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I think you know. Well, you know, I'm not going to get on here and re against democracy, but but we can say that democracy is not a perfect system as it's being executed now. I, I think it's being I think it's being tested in a way 
that in our lifetimes we haven't quite seen. And I think right. people are starting to maybe see the cracks in the, the facade. I mean, if, right. if, but you know, that could just be my little, my little corner that I inhabit online, but I, you can feel it out there, a, a certain mm -hmm. amount of skepticism in, in the whole, the whole affair. Right. Yeah. Right. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And so Jung is seeing all this and he, you know, he, he, and he has all of this recent experience, you know, where, where politics, where the rubber of politics hits the road of, of war, you know, he's seen all of this. And so he's skeptical of a lot of things. Um, he does get to know some pretty famous names while living in Berlin, inclu including Carl Schmidt, who is the, uh, the, the famous Nazi jurist. He gets to befriend, uh, uh, Goebbels who called Storm of Steel a war gospel. Um, but he also gets to know um, Brecht and Ernst, Ernst, uh, sorry, Ernst Tola, who is a, I don't know that name, but apparently he was a big deal leftist expressionist playwright. So, so Jung has got friends all over. He's, he's, he's not, he has his own political opinions, but he doesn't necessarily um, formulate his social relationships around making sure you two see eye to eye. Exactly. He's cosmopolitan. If mm -hmm. he's in Berlin, he's a cosmopolitan exactly. man yeah. and right. with a history, with a, with a, a best-selling book, uh, and a serious bestseller. This yeah. is not a murder mystery. This is right. something quite serious. Yeah. I, I could see. Yeah. You're giving me a nice picture yeah. of his milieu. It's, it's one of the most important books written by a participant and one of the most important historical events of the last couple centuries, right? So it's, yeah, it's a big deal. It is a big deal book for sure. Um, and he's still fairly young, but he's de he's developing. So his education comes from war, writing about war and meeting all of these other people in Berlin. That's where his education comes from. And his natural curiosity reading, you know, he gets obsessed with uh, Goethe and, and, and other German writers and, and a bunch of other people. Say um, it with me, Goethe. Goethe. He got it. Okay, all right. It's good enough. <laughs> yeah okay good oh man i i have I'm a whole the i've been bad. ready no you're fine yeah nobody gets nobody gets goethe right, right. uh I'm i've probably heard not it getting it i've heard people yeah. more sophisticated than me pronounce it worse than i did so yeah uh, you do, you, you're doing fine you're oh, doing thanks. fine thanks, yeah buddy. yeah thanks. we are not we are not historians we are not military historians we are not historians of uh 20th century europe uh yeah. and Historians are the are people who make history in the pure sense in that they write history. People right. have this weird thing. Let me let me do a little bit of a, a, a an autistic aside here, but people have this uh, have this weird idea that history is what happens. History is not what happens. History is what is recorded of what happened. Most pr principally, history is what is written about what happens happen mm -hmm. the only people who make history are historians it, it it's really it really bugs me I and mean, it's one of the first things when you when you take a history de degree they'll ask you what is history and you and your mind oh it's the past history is not the past the past is the past mm -hmm. history is what we make of the past yeah there's we're we're piecing it together from fragments and also with um unarticulated biases biases oftentimes about pointing it in a certain direction inner yeah. subjectivity and the, right. the flaws in language but yes to be clear we're not historians we are right. students of history different yeah. right yeah. right very different and and mostly focused on on you know what does what kind of what does art how does art play with this 
interact with this? What, what comes out of it? How does art go back into it? And those sorts of things. So yeah, I had yeah. the thought that because the categories that we're trending in are like books, arts, a little bit history now, but I thought that we could change because our, our listenership leans heavily male. And, yeah. and I thought to attract some of, some more of the, the, the ladies, we might sort of try to trick the algorithms by changing our category to true crime <laughs> because because art is crime art is a crime everything else is just design it's the best one it's the best one though <laughs> indeed it is no yeah. i think we'll keep our categories yeah. we'll see you know yeah maybe yeah. we'll yeah, we right. could we should at some point somewhere down the line in our dozens and dozens of episodes do a episode on a subject who is like a serious criminal criminal mm-hmm. like mm. and do it like a true crime episode in that like style it. be like a parody like episode well you know what we, what we could do is we really have to overproduce it yeah <laughs> yeah when or that patreon it, money comes in yeah maybe, yeah yeah or we have, we have we have to find a third guy who will do voices right right kind of right thing. yeah we're, <laughs> and as i was walking through the park and there's like damp footsteps Ooh. on leaves yeah. <laughs> bunch of foley sounds <laughs> and listenership just plunges <laughs> like what are these guys this show used to be good man oh man they, they went off the rails <laughs> all right so Junga, 1920s 1930s berlin germany what is the most well-known person who's in germany 1930s kevin i mean i it's obviously one. hitler all right, we're now. That's exactly right. We're in the Hitler section of my. Okay, my, yeah. Uh, We've come here. to Hitler time. Yeah, um, Hitler. <laughs> we're gonna do. So I beg your pardon. We're gonna do Norm Macdonald later this year. Yeah, and he was so funny because he could make the word Hitler a punchline <laughs> just just by saying it. he could just say it and get a laugh. I don't know how he did it. Anyway. Yeah, the more the more I learn about this guy, it sounds like a real jerk. That's, that's his <laughs> joke about Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. Oh boy. So Hitler, huge fan of Storm of Steel, right? Huge fan. Hitler fought in the Battle of Some. Hitler was a World War One veteran. And I think that has you have to realize that in the narrative, right? Um in 1926, he's a he's a sort of a rising politician, and there is a uh coordinated and scheduled meeting between uh Hitler and Junga. It never actually happens. They never actually meet. Um, and yet Hitler, a couple of different times in Junga's career, would come to Junga's defense. And and without Hitler's advocacy for him, things his fate probably would have been worse. Now, of course, that's within the system that Hitler designed. So it's kind of like, well, eh, you know, it's not like he... I'm not trying to give Hitler any points here. But what, what I'm trying to locate us is... is what I'm trying to do is locate where Junga is relative to Hitler. Hitler liked Junga, but what did Junga think about Hitler? This is a totally different thing. So I'm going to read something from the biography again. <clears throat> and this is Junga had a lot of dreams about Hitler. Junga was a mystic, and we haven't quite gotten to this quite yet. He was a mystic, he saw depths and levels to things. And one thing that he did was he had dream visions of Hitler. Um, I'm going to read from the bio here. Again, uh, a portrait by Leonard Svensson. One of the chief dreams in this respect about Hitler 
uh, is referred to on October 26, 1943, but never told in detail. This is a dream from 1938, uh, experienced uh, during a Jünger passage to the island of Rhodes. In this dream, uh, in this note, Jünger tells us, uh, Hitler is said to have met Jünger, pitting his strength against his and offering him dominion over all earthly kingdoms, so to speak. Literally, Jünger says that in the dream, he made a stance against Nibolo. He would call Hitler Nibolo in his journals so that nobody knew who he was talking about. Uh, mm, he made a smart. stance against Nibolo and his minions in their center of power. Right Later on, um, this is in 1945. I'm jumping ahead, but I think it's relevant to talk about here. This is another dream. This night, another visit by Nibolo. This is Jünger writing himself. This night, another visit by Nibolo myself putting a room at his disposal for a conference with some Englishmen. The result was the pro proclamation of gas war. And people might know that Hitler didn't want to use gas in, in warfare, right? He used it in the, in the Holocaust and, and things, but apparently he didn't want to use it in war. He'd experienced it himself, etc. All things considered, I realized that he would benefit from this, having reached such a degree of nihilism that put him outside of parties. To him, every dead human being meant a gain, indifferent to which side he was on. I also thought, yes, and it's therefore you've had so many hostages shot and you will get a thousand times interest on this at the expense of the innocent. And finally, now you have achieved what you wished from the outset. All this in a mood of almost indifferent disgust since my roof was already shot through and I angered myself over the fact that it had rained on my South American insects. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what he thought of Hitler, but I'm going to give you another quote that um, I pulled from a... Uh, 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 there's a little bit of a documentary about uh, Jünger. He's 100 years old. These people go to interview him, these, these Swedes. Pretty interesting because he's 100 years old and he's... We're going to talk about it a little bit later, but it's kind of fascinating. Um, he said this about the Nazi leadership. <clears throat> the Nazi leadership are demonic powers channeling occult forces and evince at times a kind of evil clairvoyance that cannot be credited to intelligence. Um, trying to find this other thing he said about... Well, the, the Nazis were very interested in the occult and yes. various things of that nature. So yes, yeah. yes, very, sure. hmm. very. Um, here's another thing he said about um, Hitler. I've, I've seen Indiana Jones. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Here's another thing he said about Hitler. Hitler was not merely a malicious charlatan, but a genuinely demonic. And this was during World War II. He says this it, to somebody, or I think he wrote this. Um, Hitler was not merely a malicious charlatan, but a genuinely demonic figure possessing a certain diabolical greatness that is elemental and infernal, which feeds on the forces, forces unleashed by modernity in a way the liberal intelligentsia are incapable of understanding. He is bent on the most comprehensive homicide possible. There are secrets here that other tribes will never understand. Right. So like Whoa. he, he saw this as a cosmic event in some sense. Hitler's I, taking over. Right. I, I'm, I'm trying. Where's the lie? I don't disagree with him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think, I think if you don't know anything about you, it's really easy to be like, well, you're a German man. Like you're on the side. He's not. He's not on the side of it. He's trying to navigate it as a German nationalist, somebody who loves his country, right, uh, and finds himself in this odd position. Um, in 1939, he writes this book called On the Marble Cliffs. Um, it's a book that's a... 
Jung wouldn't say it's a shoe that fits many feet, but it's it seems to be a veiled um, allegory about the Nazis. Um, and it would be approved for publication by Goebbels, but mostly that's because Hitler loved Storm of Steel, right? He, he's riding on this Storm of Steel credit, which gets him through <laughs> a lot of stuff that otherwise he would have been ruined by, right? Just keep on playing the hits, Younger. Right, right exactly. Yeah, you, shut up and play the hits, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is apparently at one point Hitler says, leave Junga alone. Okay, we're going to get to that, though. Wow. So I'm going to give you a real quick description of On the Marble Cliffs because it's his first attempt at writing fiction. It's this novel that comes out in 1939. It describes the upheaval and uh, ruin of a serene agricultural society. Uh, the peaceful, I'm reading from Wikipedia now, just a quick one paragraph little summary. The peaceful and traditional people located on the shores of a large bay are surrounded by the rough pastoral folk in the surrounding hills who feel increasing pressure from the unscrupulous and lowly followers of the dreaded head forester. The narrator, narrator and protagonist uh, live on the marble cliffs as a botanist with his brother. I'm oh, sorry. The narrator and protagonist lives on the marble cliffs as a botanist with his brother Otho, his son Ario, from a past relationship, and Ario's grandmother Lampusa. The idyllic life is threatened by the erosion of values and traditions, losing its inner power. The head forester uses this opportunity to establish a new order based on dictatorial rule, large numbers of mindless followers, and the use of violence, torture, and murder. Now, this book would become, uh, because of the way it disapproved of violent masses and mob mentality and the use of violence to, for um, executing sort of petty political ends, it would become like a nom de cliff for resistance to the Nazis, both within Germany and in other countries. So you would be in the French resistance reading Jung's book as fuel for your resistance flame, right? As you're, you know, you know, working on Sama's dot projects and trying to make, you know, trying to keep the Germans out. Um, nonetheless, 1939, July, I think that book is published. September is, I believe, the official start of World War II. So this is happening same time, practically. Junga is called up and he's promoted. They need a war hero, right? They need this guy. He's a he's a Jocko Willink kind of figure, right? I mean, he's not, you know, he's not brutish sure. and huge, but this dude, he wrote the handbook on infantry warfare. Household right? name, yeah. war hero. You need him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and up to this time, the Nazis kept trying to recruit him for different stuff. They tried to get him in the Reichstag. He said no. They tried to get him to run the Academy of Poetry. He said no. They tried to get him to write in the Nazi newspaper. He said no. Every time he said no. Like, I am not, I'm not going to open, he's not openly fighting them. But We've had guests we've tried to get on. Same exact thing. It's a very similar experience. <laughs> Man, shit don't change. No, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Uh, so World War II starts. You're, you're Goebbels, Brad. Uh, hey, <laughs> not, dude, come yeah. on. <laughs> I totally uh, In this, uh, disavow. Yeah, no, disavow, yeah. disavow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, so they, they bring Jung in. But this is the thing. Jung is a nationalist. So if his country goes to war, he's at war, right? It's a different, it's a different code of ethics. It, it's really easy from the outside to say, well, the Nazis were evil. Why were you? he's a nationalist who believes in his country. His country's at war and his country needs him, right? He's also, remember, the two hemispheres of the Yunga brain, adventure and insects. Adventure, 
That's what's happening. World War II, adventure. I'm an older man now. It's 1939, so he's in his 40s, but it's one more chance for adventure. Um, he becomes a captain uh, commanding the 2nd Company of the 287th Infantry Regiment. At first, they put him in charge of about 200, uh, 200 uh, marching men and a, a small team of 10 command elements, and they give him a horse. It's World War II. They give him a horse which is surprising to me. So we still have these vestiges of World War One kind Do of happening. Do we know right? the horse's name? I don't know the horse's oh, name. Oh, Drats. <laughs> I thought it would be... It's always funny when a, when a horse has a name. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it had a name. Yeah, I'm we sure will do. We will do Caligula eventually. Oh, okay, right. okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so... World War II starts. He's a command, a combat command, a zone commander. At first, he actually gets some minor action. He sort of rescues somebody under fire. He gets another Iron Cross medal, but he doesn't end up being in combat for long. He gets posted in Paris um, as a staff officer. And for folks who don't know, the 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 Germans dominated France within about a month or so, and so the occupying battles to, to take France over didn't last all that long, right? So, so Jünger's in Paris for almost the entire World War II, um, mostly living in a luxury hotel. Working. Uh, so, uh, what I'm hearing is, you know, boop, 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 yep. boop, boop. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Jünger's in Paris. Yeah, exactly. And they're going gorillas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> A little Kanye reference yeah. there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and, and the French did fold very quickly be, simply because they were totally outmaneuvered and unprepared for the style of uh, kind of a new cavalry style of warfare uh, based on the tank. Yeah, I think they simply weren't real, ready. I think it's really easy. I, you know, there became this sort of meme around um, when uh, the United States invaded Iraq back in 2003, 2004, there was a big like, oh, the French are a bunch of surrender. I think there was a term surrender monkeys even went around. But, but th- and that was a reference to World War II. That was because they didn't want to join in on the invasion of Iraq. Like, that doesn't make you a, like, <laughs> so, really? It's so, you and know? you look back on that now and it's just like, like everybody agrees like, wow, that was the, the, like an, right. a murderous escapade. Right, and, I mean, right. And it's just like, oh God, and they what a back bad to, thing. Yeah, and it referred back to World War II, which is like, it's literally like if you're sitting at home, right, having a peaceful, perfectly nice day, you had a long day of work, you and your wife are hanging out, and then your insane drunk neighbor burst through the door and like sucker punched you. Like, are you a coward because he beat your ass? Like, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, right, I didn't, right. I really, I mean, I guess I wasn't prepared, but like, how am I supposed to be prepared for that? Right, right, so it's right. A little, as if, as if French military history is just them perpetually folding. It's right, like, right. And There's, what, and what yeah. uh, sort of smack can Americans now talk looking back at our recent nonsense? Anyway, right. yes. Right, yeah. right, right. So, yeah, yeah I, yeah, they, it, historically, the French, were taken over very quickly in World War II, but I just want to make sure I'm not talking smack about them. It's just what happened. I understand sure. the circumstances. And, their, and their, res- their resistance was was intense. And oh, yeah. A, and a lot of joke. people did. Yeah. A lot of people took major, major risks to keep the resistance going, right? And it was a it was a contributing factor in the eventual, you know, in the eventual. And existential, not a LARP. Right, right, yeah. right, mm-hmm. right. Um, uh, so... While Jünger's in Paris, we're going to talk a little bit about some. Uh, I want to talk about this period because he's 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 staffing a um, he's staffing an office that's partially responsible for censorship 
right? So reading all of the soldiers' mail that goes out. But he takes advantage. He's a cosmopolitan. He's a Francophile. He loves France, which is funny, right? It, like you think he's this invading military officer. He loves France. So he's meeting all of the people. He's meeting Picasso. He and Picasso apparently met a couple of times. He's meeting um, uh, Jean Cocteau. Uh, he's meeting uh, Georges Braque. He's meeting Celine. Celine, uh, for people who don't know, wrote Journey to the End of the Night, virulent anti-Semite. Jünger hated him. Jünger was like freaked out by how intensely anti-Semitic and pro-Germany was. He was like, what are you like? He couldn't, he didn't want to be around him, right? Wow. Um, because it was he was like he was basically a Nazi. So Jünger was like, I don't know. <laughs> Hands off, man. I don't know yeah, you. Man. Another another factor in all this, of course, is that the French they were desperate to not to have Paris laid siege. Yeah. They were right. desperate to save Paris. And sometimes right. the, the way to save something is to back off. Yeah. Uh and there was a book that I read many years ago. I think it's called The Show Went On or the something like that. And we have this idea that occupied Paris must have just been this, you know, ugly kind of scary place. And, and apparently it was like, no, nah, the, the theater stayed open. The dancing yep. club stayed open. It was kind of life went on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think there, there was there were there were at some point the the Gestapo did come. And then it, I think a turn happened again. We're not a World War Two history podcast. We're a we're a for today. We're a Yunga podcast. So um so I don't know all the details to that, but I think I think there were times where, yeah, like Picasso was still painting in France under occupation, right? It wasn't the total, it wasn't like everybody was living in a bunker getting shelled all the time, right? Um, now, Yunga, like I said, he's meeting all of these people. Um, there's a couple of, there's one other thing going on. And this is something that if you were raised on the History Channel, you probably don't, you might not realize what's going on. The Nazi party aliens, aliens. The, aliens? So, so the aliens show up <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in a giant that's, pyramid. Yeah, that's the, the LSD. Giant. That's the LSD in the after dark. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> uh, Yunga, uh, 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 what I was saying, if you were raised on History Channel, you might not realize that the Nazi party and the German military are not the same thing, right? It's the the Nazi party is we don't even really have corollaries necessarily in American politics. Right. But it was a, it was essentially a political party that had military arms, but the German military itself was a separate entity that was under the direction of the party, but it had the, its autonomous hierarchy within the, it. The Wehrmacht. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Indeed. And there, from the beginning, there were, um, there were dissident elements of the German army. Right. And they were fairly substantial. But again, a lot of these people were like Junger. They were nationalists. They believed in Germany. They said, if our country's at war, then we're at war. Right. It was that sort of attitude. But the descent from Hitler and Hitler's Hitler's ideology and Hitler's um, Hitler's overall goal came on fairly early and in Paris was a hotbed of this kind of activity within the German military, German military resistance to the Nazis. And Jung's participation in this was um, sort of not at the big scale, but I would say at the small and the medium scale. At the small scale, he would um, he was supposed to be censoring soldiers' letters. So one thing that he would do, if he saw a letter that had something that was problematic in it, something that you know you'd get sent to prison for 
or something, or something he'd, bad he'd would happen. Go on, he'd go on Twitter and he'd get him canceled. He would get him. He would cancel him. That's right. He would say, "Can you believe this guy? He's not a you know." Yeah. <laughs> Our time is so pathetic. Right. Our, right. The right. time we are living in right now is just yeah. pathetic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. He would apparently. He would apparently. He would burn the letter, and then mm. he would go to that person and he'd say, "Listen, I get it, but like you can't." You can't write that, man. You're gonna like, get in trouble. You're gonna get the, you're gonna get marshaled. Yeah, yeah, like, or worse. Yeah, it's just don't. It's you're you're good. You're fine now. I took care of it, but like seriously, <laughs> watch your six, man. It's just like the younger card, right? You get you get one shot here, you get kid. One shot. I can't protect you your whole life, but like I got right. you. I got you out of this jam. Another thing was he would tip off. He would tip off Jews. So uh, it's not clear exactly what actions he took because it's not like he's writing this down in his diaries, but it's very clear that he helped a number of Jews get out of Paris and then helped protect a number of others. He also um, he also intercepted. There were apparently a number of times where there was uh, French resistance activities that 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 um, he was able to protect from the knowledge of the German military and particularly the Gestapo. So hmm, he's sort of almost like traitorous. He's kind of, he's a traitor against the Nazis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of the German, so that's the small scale stuff he's doing. Not, not small necessarily in, in the hack on personal individual life. And, but and, and his, his wife and his children are, are along with him for the ride. No, um, he is there back in Hanover. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. So, um, well, his son. His I mean, that, son, make, his, that makes his sense. One son I, yeah. is, his one son is fighting in World War II. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah and I'm going to tell you a little bit about his fate. It's kind of it's kind of messed up. Um, but so that was a sort of small or small, small scale protecting um, individual German soldiers who would have been uh, who were saying things that needed to be censored, uh, protecting some amount of Jews and protecting uh, some degree of the French resistance. Now, the medium scale is he was sent by this uh, general sh- Spandau, I think his name is. Spandau. Spandau. S-P-A-N-D-A-U. It's got an end uh, with an L. Oh, okay. I think Sp- Spand- Spandel, something like Spandel. that. So yeah, yeah. he gets, yeah, he gets sent by this guy to the Eastern Front at one point to sort of take the temperature of the German officers to see, like, hey, how do they feel about Hitler over there? Like, can you go and check things out and just report back and let me know, like, you know, is it? You know, it's like it, a bunch of it's like a bunch of high school girls, junior high girls. Right? Does he like me? Do you like he... Hitler? Is he, yeah, yeah. Is he cold? Is, are they hot? Ooh, I don't know. Ooh, you know Hitler, Hitler didn't send me. Hitler didn't send me. I'm, I'm right. asking for myself. I want right. to know. Do you like Hitler? Right. Right. Check box. Yes. Check box. It's no. Like little, little little bracelets. Little bangles. They were all wearing Hitler bracelets. So I <laughs> right. that clearly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> oh dear. So, okay. So, so that's, that's the d- extent of, of, uh, 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 Yunga's participation in sort of Hitler resistance. Almost. There's one other big thing. And a lot of people have heard about this. Um, the, uh, uh, in 1944, was, this was made into a famous movie, Operation Valkyrie, um, mm-hmm. but it's the July 20th assassination attempt on, on Hitler. Um, and people have probably heard about this. Now, Jungen knew about it, apparently, but it's unclear the degree to which he participated. He was a very savvy. This is the other thing. He's a survivor, right? He knows. I think he was very. I mean, he survived World War One. 
partially through luck, but also through being a crafty veteran, right? It's it's he I think he understands what risks are worth taking, what risks are not. And so his degree of involvement in the July 20th assassination attempt, it's unclear, but he knew about it and probably helped in some capacity. For people who don't know, this was a failed assassination attempt on Hitler. I believe how it worked is a after much, much coordination, a time bomb in a briefcase was set in the same room as Hitler and Hitler Hitler almost was killed apparently. It went off it but went there off. was it was a big like oak or whatever mahogany it was a big heavy table or something mm. to the effect and right. Hitler was spared because uh, of like a, a leg of the table spared him or something to that effect. Right, right. Yeah, Just yeah. very dumb but, but, luck. Yeah, it almost it almost worked. Now the thing uh, that the the fallout from this was that the Gestapo, I keep saying Gestapo, Gestapo, the Gestapo <laughs> arrested 7,000 people and executed 5,000 of them, approximately. I did not know that. And th- that was the fallout whoa. of this, right? Wow. So, whoa. Yeah. Okay. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so that's pretty intense. Now, Jünger makes it out of this. They don't have enough on him. You know, Hitler likes him still, right? Um, so it's hard to know exactly what to, to what degree what. And also his involvement. You know, Jünger would say later that he thought assassinations uh, were pointless anyway. So who my knows? God. I, I keep thinking about you know little poor Hitler and and uh, you know he's uh, they just tried to kill him and it is like one of his favorite authors may have been the guy to try and kill him. No, like he's not just sitting. No, not younger. Oh no, it could, it could be. It can't be. <laughs> Say I mean, it, it's, it's so it's, yeah, 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 yeah. It's got to be. But you, I mean, I'm trying to be sympathetic, uh, sympathetic yeah. to Hitler, but it's got to be like devastating sort of to think that the people around you you know want you dead uh yeah. and potentially people you admire i right. you almost you almost wonder if there was an amount of denial in uh Jünger skating yeah it could be that could be yeah it's like yeah right that's a good that's speculation a good, but uh, that's a good yeah. point now mm. And and who knows? It's like it's not like Hitler is running these investigations on his own. You know, it's not. That's the other thing I think we is easy to forget in the history channelization of all this stuff. It's like it's not like he was making every single decision on all of this stuff. He didn't, you know, necessarily no, sign off the of assassination, not. the execution of all five thousand of these people. But it came very close to Jung. Jung's direct, the general he reported to, was executed in the in the in the fallout of this assassination attempt. Right. So it was like. It was again, he didn't fall. He wasn't in combat in World War II, but the shells are still falling, you know, metaphorically speaking. It's like that guy got got. If the mm, wrong thing was written mm-hmm. in my journal, I would have got got. And then this is what happened. Jung's son, Ernstl, Ernst Jr., is sent, he's put into a punitive platoon. What this means is they claimed that he was making um, demoralizing comments to his fellow troops, but some people suspect that this was punishment for Jung's. Uh, Un, un indetermined participation in the assassination attempt. His oh. son's put in this platoon, and then his son. It's they they send them on suicide missions because these guys are guys yeah. who've like broken the rules. He's sent to Italy, and he dies on the marble cliffs of Carrera. And now Yunga, a mystic, a guy who sees synchronicities, who believes in astrology, believes in the stars, sees his own son being killed on the marble cliffs. His novel against the Nazis is called Upon the Marble Cliffs. Mm. it's 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 heavy 
It's all very, very, very heavy. And this, this is where Jung's dissolution with, excuse me, modernity, the 20th century war violence. This is where it all starts to happen because not only that, that happens his, his son is killed, but he goes back to Hanover and Hanover because uh, Germany lost is flattened childhood home destroyed school. He went to destroyed everything he knew about his home gone. Right. And all for what? Cause this demonic force was unleashed. Like it, it's all just seems completely ridiculous. Right. Now, um, he did start to write for peace at this point. He wrote a book called, I think, A Peace. Um, and he believed that there needed to be a unification of Europe to stave off the twin dangers of modern modernism and liberalism. <laughs> so it's not like he became a hippie, right? <laughs> how's, how's Europe doing these days? We know we know we have some listeners. Uh, you can certainly yeah. message us, uh, us on know. Twitter at Art of Dark Pod. Yeah, maybe we should yeah. have done the Jung yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. here's the other thing. Jung believed that moder- uh, modernism and liberalism had conjoined forces into this sort of distorted, uh, uh, distorted uh, Leviathan-like thing, which was Americanism. Oof. He believed that all of Europe lost World War II to America. Which is pretty interesting. I am nodding vigorously. Right. <laughs> right. So, Yikes. So this is why this is why when I said early on, I'm a little upset that I was never taught Yunga in my whole education, because this is a perspective that would have added a third dimension to my understanding of everything. Right. You mean your your education in the in the Civil War for 12 years straight? Uh, wasn't enough. It didn't prepare you for yeah, globalism didn't, didn't, and didn't give me yeah. a picture of what's happening yeah. right now yeah. to me. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Time for a field trip, kids. Right. Right. Exactly. Oh, uh, so, okay. World War II ends. Yunga's still alive because Yunga is a cockroach, man. Right. You think about all the stuff he survived in World War One, all the stuff he survived in World War Two. Um, you know, inc- my impression of, of World War One, obviously for him, was purely kinetic. It yes. was physical action. World War Two, psychological, yes, political, uh, all of that. Very interesting, yeah, yeah. and surprising. And, yeah, and a, sa- a savvy guy, right? Knew how to thread the needle on staying alive, making the right kinds of friends. You know, and yeah. he, he also got to s- uh, spend a, some time in Paris, away from his family. This hobby and so, yeah. you know, it's uh, a clever boy, clever yes, boy. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Yeah. And he avoided combat like by calling in favors. I think I think once he realized that the Nazis were a demonic force was like, oh, I don't know what I got into. I can't. Just, uh, he, yeah. He's like, I can't just leave the army either. Right. Mm. He's on now. Oh, sure. Like, you know, so you got to play the game. Some yeah. you gotta figure out what degree to what degree are you going to play the game, right? I, I don't mean to sound caddish here, but uh, yeah. were there affairs? Was, was there sort of extracurricular business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably. He he may have. It sounds like he had an affair with a um uh a a Jewish doctor who was who was in France uh, in Paris. He also probably had an affair with uh, and some people might know this name with uh, F- uh Florence Gould. Was an actually an American socialite um, who was a million. She was her husband had made millions in casinos and things, and she was in like an open relationship. And she had these famous uh, salons in Paris during the during the war. Uh, it's very possible that that Jung had an affair with her. So, 
I don't, you know, he, he, you know, he never says exactly what happened in any of these things, but it's we're not here to sit in judgment. No, no, no. Um, now after the war, he was banned for a while from publishing uh, anything by the British occupying forces. He's in West Germany. One of the big reasons is he refused to submit to denazification procedures, which you were supposed to do if you were in the German military or you were in the, the Nazi party specifically, is you were supposed to go through some kind of humiliation ritual. And eventually you got like a piece of paper that you signed off on in which you disavowed all Nazi beliefs. No, it's like, but, like a struggle, a struggle uh, session yeah. for the losers. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, but, Stuff like that never happens today, Brad. No, never. I, it's never. I've never seen it. I've never heard of anything like that. But Jung has said, I'm not going to go through a denazification procedure because I am not a Nazi. I don't like the Nazis. I've never joined the Nazis. So I'm not going to denazify because that's your thing. It's not my thing. This isn't something that I have to go through. You apparently think I do, but it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to me. And this is actually, weirdly enough, where I... I already respected him at this point in the biography. This is a spot I hit where I was like, wow, because that would have been really easy to just be like, all right, what do I got to do? Just sign this thing. Okay, fine. And just, just go, no. go, go through the movements, sit in the meetings, right. listen, to the, he, listen to the consultants. Right. Because to I sign can't even thing, imagine anything like that happening now. Right. It's impossible. Right. Because this is the thing to sign a thing that says I am no longer a Nazi means that you used to be a Nazi. Right. And if you weren't, then you're lying to yourself and everybody else when you sign the thing. Right. right? It's this sort of uh, uh, whitewashing the entirety of the German people and the entirety right. of the Wehrmacht as Nazis. Right. Uh, even though the you know Nazis were specifically uh, the party. Right. Right. Mm. Right. Exactly. And so, so mm. this is a very interesting period. Now, because of all of this, he's not published for a while. He ends up kind of getting largely ignored by Germany. I mean, he was a famous name. He's like a household name before World War II. And through the, from the 50s to the 80s, he's sort of forgotten about in Germany, except for amongst the intelligentsia, right? And people in other countries would come, would, would still sort of celebrate him, but he gets kind of forgotten because they don't know where to position him exactly. He's not, he's an arch conservative, but he's not a Nazi. And he's not, he, he doesn't sit comfortably anywhere. Right. Just put him in true crime. <laughs> right, <laughs> but hey, you're, you're gonna do numbers. <laughs> let me give you let me give you a description of Yunga at this point, and this is, comes from the writer uh, Stuart Hood, who would um, translate the book on the Marble Cliffs into English in the 1950s. So he meets Yunga in the early 1950s. So roughly, this is this is the picture of. Of, of Jünger after World War II, let's say. I came away with a sense of having confronted an enigma. Here was a gifted writer who claimed to aim at, aim at the classical simplicity and clarity of the best French writing and could yet produce passages steeped in cloudy romanticism. A man who had detailed expert scientific knowledge about insects, fish, snakes, flora, alongside a marked interest in the mystical. He found it significant, he said, that his, his elder son, killed in Italy, had fallen in fighting around the marble cliffs of Carrera. When I came to read his diaries of the war years dealing with the time he spent in Paris and a city and culture he loved, I was struck once more by his fastidiousness, his constant search for the strange, the rare, the exquisite. 
Whether it was a print bought from a bookstall by the Seine, a uh, flower bought for a cultured Frenchwoman, an encounter among the intellectuals of Paris with fine minds and fine tastes and dubious politics, there is in his description of these times a kind of dandyism. He is in Baudelaire's sense of the word a flaneur who aestheticizes horror, whether they be the bombs falling on the outskirts of Paris or the description of the execution of a young German deserter. In such set pieces, the latter is an astonishing piece of writing. There is something fascinating and repulsive that can only be described as snake-like. Yet at the same time, he was engaged on the dangerous business of collecting and storing in a safe place what he called Capri Capricos. I don't know what that is exactly. Evidence of horrors perpetuated by the Nazis. He was an, an anti-Nazi. His was an anti-Nazism that sprang from the aristocratic fastidiousness, which is in itself paradoxical, for he is no aristocrat, but the son of an apothecary with a shop in Hanover who embraced the codes of honor of a military caste while asserting that he was a man of letters. Hmm. So Jünger is, this is the other thing I love about him. Jünger defines what he is, right? Like he doesn't ever, never in his life does he get pigeonholed as anything. He's he's a mystic. He's a he's a scientific, extremely rationally minded person. He's a war hero. He's a very good writer on the scent. And he's a poet, really. Um, he's all of these things. He doesn't see any contradictions in any of it. And in fact, one thing he would he would stress time and time and again in his writing over his 50 books is this thing that he would refer to as stereoscopic vision. And what stereoscopic vision is for him, it's um, he describes it really well in this uh, letter. Let me see if I can find it. He wrote this letter called A Letter to the Man in the Moon, um, where he talks about this thing. Um, yeah, and so... And one level, he says, okay, you're talking, looking at the moon. This is his example of his perspective on everything. Um, you can see the moon as both a fairy tale creature and a celestial body open for scientific uh, endeavors. You're trying to find uh, the, at the same time, mm -hmm. right? You're trying to find the, this conciliant interaction between the scientific attitude and the mythical slash artistic, right? And he was able to see both of those at the same time. Wow, and I, I totally relate to that. I, I think do too. a lot of people people can. Yeah, I that think is so, so interesting. I, I mean, mm. I thought, and this is my I own find bias. it repugnant, repugnant if you embrace one of the two solely. Oh, if, yeah, if you go yeah. too far to one or the other, you're you're missing a dimension. It's yeah, like, like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson on one side, uh, and then the sort of hippie neo pagan total thing on the other side. It's like there's there has to be for my taste, me there too, has to be too. some sort of syncretic yeah. uh, appreciation, especially knowing everything that we know about the world. But one sans the other, right. I think is just it's just disastrous. Right, I, I absolutely agree. And Junger was could not stress this enough. And you see it in his writing how beautifully and masterfully this can be this can be pulled off. Like he's he he he's exceptional at this because he does have that scientific mind, right? He does have the the insect. He believed one of the reasons he liked collecting insects and organizing them, right? And the one hand, this sounds like this slightly autistic thing to do to just organize to just organize things i want to mm. put everything in their columns and their rows and their blah 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 right there's a sense in which that sounds like okay i mean a lot of people do that sort of thing but but to him this is where the stereoscopic vision thing comes in to him by ordering them all all these insects he collected many 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 insects over the course of his life by ordering them he was starting to understand the mind of god 
Right? Uh, not to say that he would understand it sure. further, but it was like I saw how one was related to the next, and I began to see how God had assembled the world. I will not order the bugs. I will not <laughs> live in the mind of the all being. <laughs> right, 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 right. Maybe I should order the maybe, bugs. Maybe yeah. I don't know. You don't, he never ate them, as far as live I live in the so. live in the pod. <laughs> we're living right. in the pod right now, Brett. Right, right. Well, we are. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. We've 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 decided that we live in the pod. That's fine. Mm. It's fine. We the people who don't know us personally but listen to the show for them, we live in the pod. We live in the pod. We're inside the computer. Your friends yeah. are inside the computer. Um, <laughs> um, a couple other books come out post-war. One that he wrote during the war, which is called The Adventurous Heart. Um, and I'm going to read you what Albert Hoffman, the inventor of uh, the Swiss inventor of LSD, who would later be personal in-person friends with Junger. Um, I'm going to read you what he said about Junger via reading this book called The Adventurous Heart. Quote, my enchantment with Ernst Junger began with his book, The Adventurous Heart. Again and again in the last 40 years, I have taken up this book. Here more than ever, and themes that weigh more lightly and lie closer to me than war and a new type of human being, the other book, uh, books uh, that Jung had written about previously, the beauty and magic of Jung's prose was open to me. Descriptions of flowers, of dreams, of solitary walks, thoughts about chance, the future, colors, and about other themes that have direct relation to our personal lives. Everywhere in his prose, the miracle of creation became evident in the precise description of the surfaces and in translucence of the depths and the uniqueness and the, imper and, and the imperishable in every human being was touched upon. No other writer has thus opened my eyes. And the reason I wanted wow. to read that high was, praise. it is a high praise. The reason mm. I wanted to read that is this is also the guy who wrote Storm of Steel, right? Mm -hmm. This is the guy who wrote the reportage, the cold-blooded like shooting people in the face reportage of storm of steel also earned this incredible praise from albert hoffman who's not an artist but is a brilliant mind right one of the people who also created the 20th century in a lot of ways i just think i think it's interesting to hold try and hold these two youngers in your head you know it's, mm. it's, a, it's an mm. interesting balance um in 1949, Junger would write um, this book called Heliopolis, which is a, a, a dystopian novel. All of his novels are like dystopias that are basically vessels for him to make philosophical points. <laughs> They're really well done, by the yeah. way, but that's what they are. There's, uh, in German letters, there's a there's a uh, sort of a style that does that. It's like Herman yeah. Herman Hesse, uh, mm -hmm. who will will do eventually. Or yeah, and I. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a relationship. I think you can see a relationship between Hermann Hesse and, and, and Junga. Um, and, and the only one that I read in depth, I read passages from all of them, but the only one I read in depth is The Glass Bees, which we're going to talk about. That comes later in the 70s. The next big book, though, that I want to talk about, 1951, it's called The Forest Passage. And I think this is where we see the first real evidence of a major evolution in Junga's thought. I think it all makes sense up to this point, and I guess it still does, but like, all right, so we've got Storm of Steel, which is just reportage. It's about, we have war as an inner experience. He has a book about pain, just called On Pain. Um, you know, he's very much, but, but it's evolving. He eventually writes that 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 work uh, on peace about his, holding. His, his, his editor is like, isn't it in pain? 
It's, yeah. no, it's <laughs> no, on, on pain. pain. On right. pain. Oh, on pain. <laughs> I thought this was a crazy. Is everything okay at home? Right. Right. Like, what's <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh, one book I was debating whether we were going to talk a lot about, but I figured we'd just do it. The Storm Steel was, I, I think the title War as an, in, uh, as an Inner Experience is one of the most provocative titles I've come across. War, like, just think about like that invokes in me, like, oh my God, is this like a religion oh. of warfare? Like, you know what I mean? It's very, mm. and it kind of is. I um, want to uh, allow me to, I want to find the German uh, for that because I want to see what it translates. Well, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, it's not showing up uh, readily. Anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah maybe I can yeah. find it. So yeah. in 1951, he writes this book called The Forest Passage, and The Forest Passage is a metaphor for what we now might think of as exile in place. Um, this is how do you, um, it, it, it's about becoming something that he calls the forest rebel, because you have to remember he was enchanted by modernity and then saw it full face. He's, he like saw Cthulhu and mm. then said, no, <laughs> I we can't do that. This is a pro this is bad. This is a problem. He saw the tank coming over the hill and it didn't just crush his friends, it crushed humanity, right? And so he the, he's he's starting to understand how to articulate this with the forest patches and give us some, some instruction manuals and maybe how can we how can we survive modernity without being total luddites without living, you know, mm. living in a in a tunnel someplace. Um, and that's what this book, Forest Passage, is about. I'm going to read you um, a real quick thing from it, um, because every chapter he summarized in one sentence, which I think is really interesting. So I'm going to give you the one sentence per chapter summary of the Forest Passage by Yuna. One, the questions put to us are simplified and made more incisive. Two, they drive us to an either-or decision as revealed in elections. Three, the freedom to say no is systematically excluded. He's talking about living in the system, right? Four, this is intended to demonstrate the superiority of the questioner. And five, it turns a nay into a venture that only one in a hundred will dare. Six, the arena for this venture is strategically ill-chosen. Seven, there is no, this is no objection to its ethical significance. Eight, the forced passage is freedom's new answer. Nine, free men are powerful even in tiny minorities. 10, our present epoch is poor in great men, but it brings figures to the light. 11, the danger leads to the formation of small elites. 12, the figures of the worker and the unknown soldier are joined by a third, the forest rebel. 13, fear. 14, can be conquered by the individual. 15, once he realizes his power. 16, the forest passage as free action in the face of catastrophe, 17, is independent of the foreground political technicalities and their groupings, 18, it does not contradict the development, 19, but brings freedom into it through the decisions of the individual, 20, in the forest passage, there is a meeting of man with himself in his undivided and indestructible substance, 21, this meeting, this meeting banishes the fear of death, 22, even the churches can only lend a hand here. 22, since man stands alone in his choices. 23, the theologian may be able to make his situation clear to him. 25, but cannot deliver him from it. 26, the forest rebel crosses the null, null meridian under his own power. 27, 
in the questions of healthcare, 28, law, 29, and arms, he makes his own sovereign decisions, 30. Morally, too, he does not act according to any doctrine, 31, and reserves the right to judge the law for himself. He takes no part in the cult of crime, 32. He decides what to consider property and how he will defend it, 33. He is aware of the inviolable depths, 34, from which the word rises up to constantly fulfill the world. Here lies the task of being here and now. Now, there's something I love about, let me mm. read this last part about what the forest rebel is. Okay. All right. All right. Because to, to, to the forest rebel, it sounds like you're a militiaman out in the woods and it kind mm. of is that, but to, to, to Yuna, the poet is actually the, maybe one of the most important figures in all of this. He is aware of the inviolable depths from which the capital W word rises up to constantly fulfill the world. Here lies the task of being, quote, here and now. Now, what is another great book that said of the 50s, 60s that says, uh, uh, be here be now, here now. Das, yeah, right? Be here now. And so you've got something happening here where I really do think like the hippie Ramdas is one pole of it and Yuna is the other pole of it, sort of reconceptualizing what freedom means in the face of on the onslaught of modernity, right? And it's like Yunga is the right half of it and Ramdas is like the left half of it, even though I don't think they knew anything about each other, right? It's very, very interesting stuff to me. Um, there's a bunch of other interesting things in this book. Um, this is another, this is a great point, I think, to stop and refer back to something you said at the beginning of the episode about this idea of conservatives can't make art. And of course, I mean, he's he's a mystic. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people in, in their bias would go, well, there, there can't be conservative mystics, you know, right. like this kind of weird lefty <laughs> liberal, like, like, what? What are you talking right. about? Right. You got to right. read more and read right. more widely. And yeah. 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 I think and I think to to I mean, a conservative, what, what's a conservative? A conservative is a person who it depends on how you define it. But the one the one thing I've heard it defined as is. It's a person who tries to throw themselves across history and say, stop. And yeah. everybody has that point. Now, you might not live until that point in progress happens, right? Like you, for anybody listening, your point might be if progress continues for another hundred years, you might go, ho, 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 hold on. Right. Or you might have done it 50 years ago. Everybody's mm. got their own point of it stopping. Jungers was like, somewhere between world war one and world war two that's where he was like nope no more we're done this is not <laughs> this is going to crush right. us this is going to destroy mm. us spiritually right sure and you can disagree that that you can say that's the wrong coordinate i guess but i don't think you can disagree with the direction that eventually you know eventually progress becomes cancer eventually and mm. it's an individual perspective i think where that point is um you can get it at Brad at Art of Dark Thoughts. You said of all your DMs and all your opinions oh, about uh, oh, history and hey what man. it means to be a conservative. And is, I'm trying. Yeah, right. You're doing all right. Even, I don't even identify as anything. Man. So, no, yeah, don't hit yeah, me too right. hard. Yeah, sort of uh, typical American. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's how yeah. luxurious that must be. Indeed. Um, now, okay. So all this is kind of coming out. Now, there's another factor in Yunga becoming this guy 
who's writing the forest rebel who's talking about internal freedom who's basically saying the rebellions in your head i mean partially what the forest rebel is talking about is like you can just go and you can work your civil servant job and do a good job and still your own your time is your time and you are living with your sovereign within your own skull right it's very interesting now how does he get there it's he's jaded by the war He's jaded by Nazism, right? All of these things happening, his son dying, all of the things that he's been through, um, the stereoscopic vision that he has upon everything, the surface and the depth simultaneously, uh, it, to a degree that I think few other writers and thinkers in the 20th century actually accomplished. There is, uh, and he has this mystical temperament. Um, he records in his diaries, he records many counters with snakes, both real and dreamed, ones he sees carved in museums. He believed the snakes embodied life and death, good and evil. So his spirit animal, if you will, to use a modern parlance, is the snake, I would say. Um, <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty metal. Metal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right? pretty cool. It's yeah. you know, A lot of people, say, oh, I'm a wolf. And, uh, right, oh, right. I'm a lion. And I'm, right. a, no, I'm, I'm a snake. I'm a snake. Whoa. Yeah, Whoa. yeah it's heavy. Right? Uh, okay. Heavy. All right. Yeah. yeah. Strong choice there, Ernst. Yeah. Yeah. And as time goes on, I mean, he would record synchrony. He's a, he is a mystic more and more as time goes on. He's mm. recording synchronicities. He uses alchemical language in a lot of his writing. He doesn't spell it out directly, but you can see in a lot of his writing that he has this deep knowledge of the occult and the esoteric. He's clearly informed on astrology. Um, but did he has he a lot and, of. Did he and Jung tango? Did they? Have, uh, they meet? never met, but he was clearly he was clearly informed on Jung. I, he right. knew. I think he probably read as much of Jung as you could read. And he was he was an obsessive reader, right? So he's one of these guys who, on who nothing is lost. So, um, but there's another element we have to throw in here in this evolution because we're going from the young combat zone commander, you know shooting Frenchmen in the trenches through World War II to this strange sort of like conservative hippie figure, right? And and, and you got to kind of explain how this happens. And I think the one part that we can't leave completely off the table is drugs. All right, so... Uh, we love drugs on Art of <laughs> Dark Pod, Art of Darkness. Yeah, they tend to come up on... They do. Maybe. Every single episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I hope we're not talking about heroin. This, no, this no. So enemy of he the pod. Would, he, he would play with opium a little bit, um, mm -hmm. experiment with a little bit. He'd had morphine, obviously, as treatment for his insane war wounds. <laughs> I mean, that's not recreational, yeah, right. exactly. Sure. You know, he's got a shrapnel ball in your leg. Take Don't mind if I do. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's, You're gonna, let's now, go. now, like, they hook, mm -hmm. you hit that button, man. It'll give me a mm -hmm. little more. Yeah. Um, but he was very interested in the elevated states you could achieve through a variety of drugs. So he was curious, just like everything, just like what's this beetle? It was what's cocaine, right? It's it's a very much a like, what is this? And he I do think I don't know if he ever says this. He probably does someplace in his 50 books. I got the sense that he felt like you could pick any point at which to under any point was a, a fractal of everything. So if you understood uh, any one thing, you could use right. that to understand everything, right? And I think for him to ignore drugs was, it would be like a, 
it, 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 you just can't ignore it. It would be like not using a letter on the keyboard or something. Like, how are you going to understand yeah, reality? It is, now that I think about it, try imagining, yeah, navigating the 60s and the 70s without you at the very least, you had to have an opinion about it. Right. right. It was a cultural force at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk about the fact we're going to give a blow by blow of him dropping acid with Albert Hoffman in 1951. Right. Um, we're going to talk all about that, but blow by blow, blow is cocaine. It, trip by trip is ass. <laughs> trip by trip. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So that's in the after dark. So join us at patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Uh, three bucks a month as your, it gets you in the door. You can listen to our we're, 20 to 30 minute after dark episodes. We're cracking into hour three here. Yeah. We go long. We research these episodes. Uh, our time is a gift to you, but if you choose to support the pod, we greatly appreciate it. Yes, yes, yes. And it, it's worth it. I think it's worth it. I think we've we had make a, number it worth of people, it. a number of people tell us that the after dark is worth it. So, um, uh, now, 1970, I'm skipping ahead here, obviously, um, and I'm going to go I'm going to go backtrack I, a little bit. But I, I just got to stop and say, just say like he the Beatles were happening <laughs> and this guy is like yeah. still riding and still trucking. Mm -hmm. around. It's just like and, and this is and he would live to what, another 40 years? Yeah, another, I mean, I'm going to yeah. talk about I'm talking about the 70s. He lives into the 90s. So, you know, he's yeah, another 30, 30 some odd 30 years. years from there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Crazy. Basically 30 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right, crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, in the 70s, he writes a book. I'm going to mispronounce it in English. It's called approaches or approximations, um, drugs and intoxicants in German. It's called Anachrungen, Drogen und Rausch, which okay. I think approximations, right? Yeah. Um, drugs and drugs. And uh, I think Rausch is high is smoke, smoke. Okay. Rauch, Rauch is, is smoke. Okay. But, uh, yeah, yeah. What, so, what's the English title? Um, drugs and intoxicants. I think mm. it, it, it Rauch might also be a, a synonym um, yeah. or it might have multiple meanings. He wanted yeah. to call it in English. I think he wanted to call it drugs and ecstasy. So anyway, huh. this book, I'm going to look it up. I want to make very, sure I'm not getting it wrong. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. This book is very I mean, difficult smoke. to get your hands on. I did find an English translation online. You literally, I don't even think you can buy an English oh, yo. copy of the English translation. <laughs> We're on so many lists from this show. <laughs> Just deep in the dark internet, looking up a like a, a former German right. World War II sure. veteran. His writings on drugs. on drugs. Yeah, right, right. Our agents are like, oh, these guys. Oh boy, better not, so, better not slip. So I didn't. I, I this book is actually incredible. Like I, if we weren't even doing this as a subject, I would casually recommend this book to somebody in conversation. It's fat. It's 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 got this circum circum circulamambatory <laughs> where you're walking around the subject right <laughs> i'm not going like, to start correcting your english show do that pod. i just yeah. can't get that one out of my mouth for some reason <laughs> yeah, no that one's a tough one that's that's one you can say 10 times as like an yeah. acting warm-up right, right circumambulatory there you gotta, go. your you eyes kind of twitch right no i'm not trying to show you up i just think it's funny yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I right. can't, can't hurt my feelings at this point. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so it's it's like this, but it's about drugs. So it's the social history of drugs, drugs. It's the philosophy. It's personal stories of doing the drugs. It's it's all of these things. And he talks about hash, LSD, booze, tobacco, cocaine, mescaline, opium. If there had been anything else to do, uh, ether. There's a section on ether. He he talks about all of these things, and he's winding them all together beautifully. And 
there's one thing that he talks about plants and i think if he would have been uh, exposed to like the ayahuasca like ayahuasca wasn't really a thing known to europeans at this point really um so it's not something he participated in but it was very interesting for me to read this bit he had about plants where I think he's talking about plant spirits, but doesn't quite have the concept ready at hand. He doesn't have it as a reference, but this is what he's trying to talk about. So this is a quote from this book, uh, Approaches. Initiation. The fact that plants dispense something more than food, something more even than pleasure and healing, forms part of the pre-logical experience. Their veneration is more anonymous than that directed towards animals. Rather than representations of the gods, they are their presuppositions. They can be found everywhere, even in the New Testament, not only in references to bread and olive oil, but also to lilies, the mustard seed and the fig tree. When we are walking in a forest, we are overflowing with expectation. Everything changes when the ram, the eagle, or the snake appears. Paradise is the original garden. Photosynthesis is the direct absorption of light. On the Alta Plano of the New World, the coca bush is also the object of worship. Its leaves are offered as a sacrifice, and they are chewed during religious ceremonies. The lesser gods are represented with distended cheeks. They, too, enjoy the magical leaves. The fact that the gods are offered plants the way that the way uh, Athena was offered olives is a reversal of their true attributes. It would seem more appropriate for them to sprout from the lotus, like Brahma, or that they should sail among their flowers, like Lakshmi, the goddess of abundance. Right? So... He's drawing all these these references together, you know, uh, Western mythology and, and things going on in the New World. Um, <clears throat> he has, these, you know, he's got these. It, it, it's like he he wants to talk about these things in 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 high in in very connected terms, and he does a very good job of it. But sometimes he's just sort of telling a funny story, like the story he has about cannabis. He's a fairly young man. Um, and he's on some kind of trip with his mother and they're staying at a hotel and he has come upon some kind of cannabis paste. Um, and he's never done cannabis before. He's like, this is after World War One, but just after. So I think he's like in his early 20s. Um, and he eats this paste and he gets super stoned, right? He's at this hotel with his mom and he gets so stoned that he like storms out of the room in his pajamas and he bumps into some people. I think he might even fall down the stairs and the proprietor of the hotel like calls a doctor, right? And he's like, <laughs> his mom's there, wow. right? right? Yeah. And he's like, and the doctor's like, did you, <clears throat> did you take something? And he's like trying to figure out what he's going to say. And he blames it on the fact that he ate some carp earlier in the day that he thinks is sour. But I just think it's funny at this time, he's already written storm of steel. He's like this sort of famous writer and he's a, he's a respectable man with medals of honor and things. Mm -hmm. And he's mm -hmm. baked out of his mind, trying to <laughs> come up with a story yeah. so that his mom doesn't think that he's stoned. It's, carp. I just think it's, it's a fish. Took too much, man. You took too much. <laughs> um, like I said, we're going to talk more about LSD in the after dark, but he did have an uh, interesting experience with mescaline. So I'm going to give you a little reading on his thing on mescaline. <clears throat> in those environs, I also felt the distance. I heard a dog howling. It was the wolf of Fenris. From the foam that splashed from his jaws, the Milky Way was born. But here space did not lack life. It pulsated with expectation. Half of my being breathed empathy, but sinister, but the sinister predominated. I paced back and forth. I made myself comfortable in the armchair and observed the books. Their spines rose up like towers. 
I was not conscious of how much energy was concealed here, that they were printed, that they had frontispieces and texts was irrelevant. It was the simple reflection, a platonic shadow of a spiritual power. Authorship was a minor loan limited in time. I could not bear to always see phenomenon that way, not even a simple phenomenon. It is good that our perception filters it, that our senses divide it, that the world word fixes it. I went to the other room where my son was sitting at the table. He had just finished eating. My wife came through the door with a gesture of a priestess. Her hands crossed over her breast. Her smock hung down to the floor. She was standing, it is true, in a dark part of the room, and I saw her attending to her duties and responsibilities, and I also saw the totemic animal of the sun, just as I had seen the books. Everything was order, in order. All was going well. So I sat there a long time, contemplating the two of them in a silent and peaceful room. Just as previously, the fire was engendered from the snow. Now my power and my confidence flowed. When I reflected on this later, I realized that I had not spoken a single word. Right, so he's having these like quasi dad's tripping. What's up yeah, with dad? Ab- dad's, absolutely. Uh, dad's tripping. Wow. <laughs> now he saw these things as it's called approaches. He saw these things as an approach to. I mean, later in life, he would say that one of the goals of art was to approach the Godhead. I think he saw these as a way, a path a potential path towards enlightenment if used properly. Now he had issues with it. Like the one thing he said, tobacco, like he would differentiate between, and I think most of us do this intuitively. He would differentiate between somebody who's chain smoking cigarettes and somebody who's enjoying a cigar after dinner because it facilitates conversation. Same thing with alcohol, having a few drinks with your boys and, and enjoying that spirit, that, that vitality. That's one thing. Getting drunk on your own, another thing. And he would treat this all of the drugs like that, right? I think that was his perspective is that, and this is, and, and this is where it tied into his perspective on modernity. What modernity does is it takes something like the coca leaf, which you would chew in a ritual fashion, and it didn't overpower you, but it helped you get through your day. It helped you feel closer to nature. What we did is we sucked the cocaine out of it, and then we all became addicts to it. Same thing with t- tobacco. We instead of occasionally smoking a cigar, we all smoked a bunch of cigarettes and you know killed ourselves of it. And same thing mm-hmm. with you know same thing with opium. We 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 turned opium into morphine and heroin, sucked all the magic and spirituality out of it. And 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 he was he's talking about this as a metaphor for what modernity does to everything. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's a really interesting point, right? Mm. Like, yeah, I mean, drugs are bad. Okay, heroin heroin's you shouldn't never do heroin right that's, don't do heroin don't do yeah. heroin never do heroin yeah yeah, yeah never but, do heroin yeah he's making a point that like yeah but 200 years ago smoking an opium pipe might have brought you closer to something that you can't get to anymore you know and there's a, there's a point there i think um well uh, drugs are spirituality they are politics they are all mm-hmm. of these things to lots of different people they're they're the devil to to right. some people and right. so they're very very loaded substances uh right so of right. course they come up on every episode yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty much I, yeah. yeah except for the lovecraft and he like he didn't do drugs so hard that it was almost just as bad <laughs> Yeah, Lovecraft could have used a, a little bit. Yeah, he should have yeah. found a, a vice. A glass yeah. of scotch every once in a while right, probably would right. have done, done him mm. well. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think this is, I just think that this is all really interesting stuff. And his, and this book is, is beautifully done. Uh, and you should read it. Uh, you can, you're going to have to just find it on like internet archive or whatever it's called approaches, uh, Unger on drugs and intoxicants. Um, wonderful stuff. Um, and, and I don't just say that because it's about drugs. It's beautifully written. And the approach is something that always is appeals to me where it's like it's broken up. It's one paragraph. It's about the symbolism of, of you know, the moon. And then it's talking about mescaline and he's tying it all together. It's very well done. This is, this is where I finally uh, break and join you in r- resenting the fact that Junger was is not published in the, uh, the English speaking world. I worked in a a bookstore and appraised books uh, for a period of time while I was at university. Yeah. And I, I like everybody else, like anybody else, I got into Gurdjieff, I got into Huxley, and I may have may have gotten into some some drugs myself. <laughs> and and you you have all the classic sort of books on the the subject uh, that everybody knows. And I this is the first time I've heard of this, and it's a total left turn for me and a, and a shocker. Yeah. I can't say that I'll personally rush to get this partly because i I, my reading is art of darkness uh related i have about eight books right now about uh, francis bacon the subject that i'm doing next Mm -hmm. um well in any case i join you in kind of resenting the fact that we we did not know about him but it's also great that we're finding out about him now yeah and i i I think I think this is a, I think he's a necessary, I I think he's every time he puts something out, he's this slightly alternative take on something that a lot of other people are talking about. And it's not that he's radically opposed to it necessarily, but it's always this different, it's this different turn, the drugs thing. It's a slightly different turn. These utopian novels, dystopian novels, it's a slightly different turn than what Orwell or Huxley are saying. He's always, he's, it's, it's a, I mean, maybe it's a German perspective. I don't know enough about the German German culture and to say if it's a German. I think it's a Jünger thing. I think he's this sort of. I think he's sort of ends up through all these kind of cultural and historical and political forces somehow being a man living in a country of one somehow, like mm. almost coincidentally. It's very yeah. it's very interesting. Very interesting. I did not expect yeah. this episode to go this direction at all. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and this is the thing. In the in when he's a hundred years old, he's talking in praise of drugs. He's like, <laughs> nice. He's literally. They ask him, "Is he interested in computers?" He's like, "Meeting of man and machine. I don't care about that. Intoxicants are much better." <laughs> he's a hundred years old. You know what I mean? He's very, yeah. Uh, and mm. so, and then again, we, you know, oh, he's a conservative, so he doesn't have any, you know, nothing he mm. thinks is going to be, you know, it's it's really he, he's. Anyway, I'm I'm just geeking out about Junger now. So anyway, uh, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about a book that he put out in 1957, Kevin, which you mentioned up near the beginning, which is called The Glass Bees. The Glass Bees is um, I read a couple of books. I had read a handful of books here cover to cover and Glass Bees was one of them just because um, it's fascinating. Interestingly enough, slight personal side note, I'm reading The Glass Bees. Now, what The Glass Bees is about uh, the, the premise of it, but again, like all of his novels, it's a vehicle for him to make philosophical and sort of cultural and sociopolitical asides. It's about a um, a guy named Captain Richard, who's a, a war veteran, kind of down on his luck. He, he didn't make the right friends sort of after the war and modernity kind of ran him over, right? But he's a smart, capable guy. He just made the wrong decisions. He had the wrong personality type. He didn't fit in. And he gets one more job 
possible opportunity to do some kind of ambiguous work for this guy named Zapparoni. Now, Zapparoni is like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Kanye West, the guy that invented Bitcoins. All these things rolled into one. He radicalized the automaton industry. He's made an automaton for everything. And it's led into films that star automatons, almost like CGI now. And, um, and, and automatons that take care of every little function that you might want them to take care of. And somehow Captain Richard has gotten an opportunity through like a friend to possibly be, he thinks maybe be this guy's bodyguard or something. It's not even clear what he's going to do for Zapparoni. But this whole book is all about like, there's a lot of discussion about like, um, the dehumanizing effect of the machine, right? Of, of the, the, the machine of modernism taking over life. And our Captain Richard feels so alienated because he went, when he went to war, they were riding horses. And when he came out, everything was on a friggin' spreadsheet. Like it doesn't make sense to him. I'm reading this book in line for roller coasters. Like it was very strange, like a huge towering <laughs> thing of like metal, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it was a very, and I'm in line just like every few seconds I move and I don't know where I'm going exactly. I don't know how long it's going to take. And <laughs> reading this book is a very surreal experience for me. Um, but let me read you a couple little sections that I just think are quite, quite good. Um, and again, I'm not going to give you, this is just to capture, I think, a couple of the points that, <clears throat> that, that Junger is trying to make. Again, this book is called The Glass Bees, written in, uh, was it, 19, 1957, which is the year that On the Road came out. So just kind of think about that. <laughs> like, same exact year these two books come out. Um, mm-hmm. This is him talking about uh, Zapparoni. <clears throat> Uh, it's first person Captain Richard, the character Captain Richard ta- is talking. Uh, Zapparoni's director of public relations had developed a system of indirect reportage, which stimulated but never quite satisfied curio- curiosity. A famous person whose face one does not know is generally thought of as being handsome and imposing. A person who is much discussed but whose resonance is unknown is suspected of being everywhere. He seems to multiply himself miraculously. A person so powerful that one does not even dare speak of him becomes almost omnipresent since he dominates our inner life. We imagine that he overhears our conversations and that his eyes rest on us in our closest and most private moments. A name that is only whispered is more powerful than one shouted from the rooftops. All of this Zapparoni knew. On the other hand, he could not ignore publicity completely. This fact introduced mystifying surprises into his propaganda. It was a new system. Okay, so that's just like him, you know, this modern era, this this fictionalized modern era that's kind of true and not true at the same time. I want to read this little bit of a long passage on this friend of Captain Richards called um, Lorenz. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, okay. This is um, this is sort of before the war or just after the war. So it's a flashback sequence. So the prime thing is Captain Richard's dissolute, friendless. He's married, but his, he did, he, he, he's, he's one of these guys, Captain Richard, who's like so, he's reached this thing where he's so sort of self-loathing that he disrespects his wife because his wife loves him. You know what I mean? Like that level, like how could you... How could you love Yeah, him? yeah. Like, I never right? like, want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's reached that kind of thing. And so he's kind of reflecting back. <clears throat> he's talking about him and some of his friends. And he, he starts to realize 
that the reason he thinks Zapparoni wants him is because Zapparoni thinks will think that Captain Richard is quote a man he could steal horses with, which I, I don't know if that's a German colloquialism or he's or or Jung is sort of pretending it's one, but like he thinks he's going to be brought in to do Zapparoni's dirty work is basically what sure. he's starting starting to think, right? Um, and so he's talking about his old days. Why would why would somebody think that me, Captain Richard, is somebody who do the dirty work? We used to meet in the room of a comrade who lived on the top floor of one of those tenements, which were being built quickly and badly. The room had one large window from which one looked down as through a deep shaft into the courtyard, which from this height appeared not much larger than a playing card. This comrade's name was Lorenz, a slender, slightly nervous fellow who had also served in the light cavalry. We all liked him. There was an air of the old freedom and ease about him. In those days, almost everyone was possessed with an idea. This was a peculiarity of the years following that war. Lorenz's idea consisted in seeing the machine as the source of all evil. Therefore, he intended to blow up the factories, to redistribute the land, to transform the country into a large peasant commune in which everyone would be peaceful, healthy, and happy. In substantiation of his opinion, he had assembled a small library, two or three shelves full of well-thumbed books, chiefly by Tolstoy, who was his saint. The poor boy did not know that at present there is only one kind of land reform, expropriation. Indeed, he himself was the son of an expropriated farmer who had not survived his losses. Oddest of all, Lorenz advocated these ideas on the top floor of a tenement in the midst of a group which, if not lacking in confused schemes, was at least in technical matters up to date. Now, on that terrible evening, it was actually almost early morning, we had been drinking heavily and our heads were flushed with excitement. Empty bottles stood along the walls and from the ashtrays, wreaths of smoke drifted out the open window through which one saw a sickly sky. All this was far removed from the peace of villages. I was half asleep, and only the noise of the conversation kept me awake. Suddenly, I gave a start. I felt that something was taking place in, in the room that called for the utmost attention. In the same way, a, receive, a receiving instrument starts to vibrate when a, a message is transmitted, and music is interrupted by the distress signals of a ship in danger of sinking. My comrades had stopped talking. They were looking at Lorenz, who had risen from his chair in extreme agitation, Perhaps they had been teasing him again, treating as a joke a condition that called for an experienced doctor. Only later did they realize how unusual all this had been. Since Lorenz was a teetotaler, it was obvious that he was not drunk, but in a sort of trance. He no longer defended his idea. Instead, he complained about the lack of men of goodwill. His plans could so easily be realized if only such men existed. Our fathers had set an example. It would be so easy to consummate the sacrifice which the times expected from us. Only when it was consummated would the crack which split the world in two be closed. We looked at him, not understanding what he was driving at. At one moment, we felt like spectators of a senseless tirade, at the next like witnesses to an incantation in which something uncanny flickered up. He became quieter, as if weighing in his mind a particularly convincing phrase. He smiled and repeated, but it's so easy. I'll show you. Then he shouted, long live blank, and just jumped out the window. I shall not repeat the name he spoke. We thought we were dreaming, but at the same time, we felt as though we were connected by an electric current. We sat in a suddenly empty room like an assembly of ghosts, our hair standing on end. Although the youngest of us, Lorenz, had been a leader in gymnastics, I, often, I had often seen him vaulting over the parallel bars or the horse. I do not, uh, did the great silence which followed last five or ten, seven seconds i do not know 
In any case, and even remembering, one would like to drive a wedge into that inexorable moment so that it might lose its logic, its inevitability. Then we heard that dreadful, dull, hard thump out of the depth of the courtyard. There was no doubt possible. The fall had been fatal. <clears throat> now, there's a little bit longer. Um, but there's a little bit more, but then they go to the funeral of Lorenz. The funeral held at a suburban cemetery was a pitiful affair. As the people attending it dispersed, embarrassed remarks could be heard. Jumped out of the window when drunk, they said, and on like that. So that there's a lot more to this book, and that's just a vignette from Captain Richard's memory, but he's talking about what happened to these men after the war who couldn't deal spiritually sure. and psychologically with with modern with modernity with what was happening to them how do you take a, a fellow who comes back from the psalm who drinks too much how yeah. do you berate him really right. at, at a certain point what where's the line right. uh yeah hmm. yeah and that's yeah. a perennial story for sure it is. yeah it really is um yeah and you know so i could read more about that book i think what i think i want to use that to talk about is this idea of um the titans that Junger would talk about in the titanic he thought it was no coincidence that the boat the titanic was called the titanic right and and for people who sort of know their history or know their mythology the titan is uh it's not a god exactly it's a demigod yes exactly yeah right right Mm. right um they're uh, they're they're they don't have they're they have powers in some ways comparable to a god, but they don't have. They're missing. Um, Junger would Junger would say that they were blind and insatiable. They were they had goals, but they didn't have limits. They didn't have uh, limitations. They didn't have systems in which they operated. Right. Um, so you know, here's something that here's something that he says. Um, the god God is dead. Per, as as said as said Nietzsche, um, and the gods do die, but the titans gain power. Technology is just the clothes, the armor of the titans. Um, and there's an essay I read about a, a blog that's dedicated to to Junger, uh, Ernst-Junger.blogspot.com. It's actually pretty well done. A lot of it's in German, but there's one about titanism. Um, and uh, Apparently, the etymology of a titan of titan is overextender or overstretcher or overstepper, something like that. Um, and so, for Jung, they represented. This is a label he would put around these forces that we had unleashed in the 20th century. That we had sort of. It wasn't just that Nietzsche's quote "God is dead." It was that something was filling its place, and it was these blind, insatiable forces that were going to run us over and just and 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 kill us spiritually, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and anything could be behind that. And, and he, you know, would point at things like environment, environmental problems. Um, you know, he would point at things like scientism, even right, because it's not it's not bounded. It's not. It's there. There isn't the hand of wisdom sort of guiding it, um, and then just overall extremism of of, of all stripes. Um, also, the this notion of relentless economic growth that it just has to grow all the time, and if it doesn't grow, then then what are we doing, right? The, and and progress to him was a similar kind of thing, right? It's like it's if it's just progress, 
and it's just growth and it's just science, but it's never reined in by any kind of, of faithful wisdom, then it never has a stopping point. And you don't know at what point it's going to run you over, as I think is kind of, is kind of what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, the forest passage, that work he did in the forest passage, that was an attempt to understand a way to get out of that, a way to get around it, a way to dodge it in some way. He, he kind of realized like, you can't really fight it, I think, but you can fight it since it's a spiritual war in a sense, a spiritual conflict in a sense, you can win it for yourself on a spiritual plane, I think is what he was trying is is one of sort of his many theses. Um, Yeah. So yeah, trying to get the context of all this, because I really want people to understand what his perspective was and how he got to all of these things. I think it's real. I think he becomes a very fascinating figure because of this. Um, and, and one of the, one of the most interesting and, uh, articulate, fully articulated critiques of modernism, right. Of, of what this is doing to all of us, even though he's sort of, you know, it's not like he was, he wasn't an extremely online person, right. This is, this is coming, you know, this is, this is generations or this is like before, this is our great grandparents generation. This guy's coming out of, right. Um, he's a man, he's certainly a man out of time. Um, and it's cause it's just cause he got lucky enough to survive through into it. Um, yeah, and made it to uh, what, what was it? 103, 102 years old. Yeah. 102? Almost 100, basically 103. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. A couple weeks shy of his 103rd birthday. So, so he would fully, he would more fully develop these ideas, um, into something that uh, there's a book called, uh, Omisville. Um, where he would fully ide- uh, develop this idea of the anarch and the anarch related to anarchist, but it's not an anarchist. He was very careful to delineate um, where the anarchist ended and the anarch began. Um, so this is in the 70s. He writes this book, Omisville. Um, and it, this is one of his, maybe it's his most famous novel. Um, it's another kind of dystopian uh picture of the world in which he's using it as a vessel to kind of explain these cultural, political, and philosophical ideas. Um, I want to do throw a couple characters at you from this book because they're kind of interesting. Um, The one character is Manuel Venator, who's the main character. This is a historian um, who lives in this town of Omisville. Um, one of his many projects is, uh, this character's many projects is something called Historia in Nus, which is Historia in a Nutshell, where he collects all manner of textual objects that sum up history in a symbolic or archetypal manner. So it's something like, it's something like the glass bead game almost. It's this like, uh, or it's the internet the or something. record, the, the yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And this guy's kind of dedicated his life to, 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 to trapping all of this. And it's almost like if you could come up with a symbol that was accurate enough, it would tell you everything. Right. It's sort of something it along like Borges. Uh, right. There is Borges, a flavor yeah. of Borges. And we're going to talk about Borges in a minute. Um, so we're actually, we're actually sort of approaching the end I don't know, 102 years and we're only in this 80th year. It might not feel like it, but we are getting there. Um, so there's a couple of other things that are in this book that we haven't, that he, that are things he likes to talk about or is interested in, you know, that is that we haven't, um, uh, oh, well, let me quick tell you about a couple other characters just so you kind of have a sense of what this book is. The other, another big character is this guy, Vigo. Vigo is one of, um, 
of uh, Venator's teachers. This is a guy who's like a man of the woods, uh, an idealist historian who teaches about the presence of the eternally beautiful in all things. So you can imagine this is like one of the one of the angels sitting on Yuma's shoulder all the time in his own life. Um, and then you have Venator, uh, Venator's other teacher, this guy, Bruno, who's a man of the grottos, the arch, uh, the archives and storerooms, who's into computers and organizing things in that fa- fashion. Um, and I think Bruno is this notion. Bruno is this emblem that like, um, it, there's, there's a value to, to, to learning and sophistication and organize, organizing and articulation, but there's also something that's potentially life-threatening and soul-deadening about that process. There is, like, I think he was aware that by, like, you, you can't collect a beetle without killing it, right? There's, so there, there's, there's, a, there's a double-edged sword to that well, process. A, that could be a, a, the very definition of modernity is that idea. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all collecting beetles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are the collected beetle. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I don't think, I think you, Junger was savvy to that even while he's p- putting a bit pin in the needle, right? I think he understood that that that, that was a emblematic of that process. Um, so there's also an interesting thing. There's an object in here, and this is just, this is just interesting. There's an object called the luminary in this book, the Omisville, which is a sort of historical kaleidoscope. And I want to read you um, the character Manuel Venator um, describing this thing called the luminary because it's basically a smartphone. This is just kind of interesting. Um, uh, <clears throat> this is from uh, Omisville. The Perugian Chronicle of Matazzo, the, uh, wait, sorry. Yeah. The Perugian Chronicle of Matazzo, the history of a city among cities in a land among lands, in between I tune in pictures of Etruscan gates, of the Pisano chancel, of the Baglioni family, Petrio Perugino, the 12 year Raphael. Even this selection leads out into the limitless. And that goes for every source, for every point of tradition that I touch upon. I hear it creaking, then a light. It's the historic buildup. Uh, historical buildup in its continuous undivided power friends and enemies perpetrators and victims have contributed their best to it so it's this thing that you go into sort of like the glass bead game sort of like going down a wikipedia rabbit hole where you select something and it carries you into something tangentially related and that takes you into something else tangentially related and all of humanity has contributed to it in some way um and it's a double-edged sword having this thing (laughs) Right. It's a there's in some ways it's it's too powerful, but then everybody has it. And it's, a it, you know, it's it's interesting. It, I think it hmm. says a lot about, you know, the, the I, it's almost cliched now to be like, oh, these phones in our pocket, man. But there's it's cliched because there's. Some yeah. truth to it, right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. He's a fellow who he did not write the same book five times. He no. it, I, I really admire that. Yeah, it's it's really it's 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 interesting. For his fiction, he used sort of the same format, but they're all very they're very very different. Um, I, I do want to hit this one point, and then we're gonna I, I'm kind of done talking about his works. We I do want to talk about the last sort of third of his life or so a little bit. Um, but I do want to hit this point of the anarch. Uh, it's an interesting concept. So he first start, started to articulate it in the Forest Passage with this idea of the Forest Rebel. Now the anarch is something. It's related to the anarchist, but it's not because his point about the anarchist is 
um, that the anarchist decides that they are they position themselves in relationship to the governing powers, and that automatically grants the governing powers um, power. Right, you're playing you're, their game. You're playing their game. That's exactly that's the best way to put it. The anarch does not play their game. The anarch does, in a sense, play their game. But this is one thing he says: um, during the day, the anarch may be a simple civil servant simple civil servant but in the evening he sits in his library and thinks of other things he differs from the anarchist who intervenes undertakes actions and finally commits suicide the anarch looks at the whole thing and thinks his thoughts but he doesn't intervene it's a survival mechanism it's it's you can't like his thing is you can't take on you can't take on the machine you can't take on the modern era you can't take on the government what you have to do is find a place in your mind, in your soul, in your heart, and how you um, utilize the resources within yourself to be as free as you can be. This is perfect for the uh, galaxy brain or the uh, the, the genius uh, and and the the dummy uh, IQ meme. Right. Perfect. Right. Yeah. I just yeah. I just am. I am the anarch. Right, on the right, left right, and the right, right. then yeah. the guy in the middle is like freaking out about everything yeah yeah the first the the, the first one's like i just go along to get along man uh, middle one's yeah. freaking out last one i just go along to get along man yeah <laughs> that's yeah. right that's exactly yeah, right yeah and it, it's like it and you can see how this develops it this is a man who survived challenges that we can't even comprehend and this is his advice for achieving spiritual freedom and it's not hmm. cowardice it's i think it's real i think it's realistic and I think it's also like, cynical and realistic about political and cultural systems um, that we're all sort of subject to. And we all think, well, like, well, I got to freak out about whatever so-and-so said about what so-and-so. Got so many opinions. Yeah. And Jung is like, well, I, you know, I collected a beetle and read a book while you were doing that. So. Right. And I, spent time you know, with my, my wife and my right, son. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's like a, kind of like a German Zen <laughs> a <laughs> <laughs> little bit yeah this yeah. is this is what i'm saying this is why I, I was i was really stressing that ram das be here now thing earlier it's like it's like uh yeah this is the right pole of the of the of the be here now thing that ram das it's very it's very interesting it's very interesting and in, in, in a gap that i think a lot of, of people have in their understanding of what's possible and what has been written yeah yeah you know? for sure for sure so so that kind of ends my what I want to say about his work. I mean, he wrote about so much stuff. I mean, he's got a book about the about vowels or not a book. He's got a long essay about vowels. He's got that book about the meaning of pain. Um, like, you know, he, he talks about he's got essays about uh, reintegrating the mythological image back into a culture, destroying itself with abstraction. Right. He's, he's like he's got a lot of he 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 sort of never left anything uncommented upon right he, he one thing that i loved is he said that the great artists are essentially magicians which i think is wonderful and i do want to read a little bit from the bio the biography again ernst uh Junge, a portrait by leonard svensson um about uh you know something else Junge's kind of perspectives on art in general um <clears throat> I here make the reservation that a work of art always hides a rest unreachable by any method. Except for its aesthetic quality, a great work of 
art has another one, a magical quality. Formerly, this was very strong, even dominant, however, declining in the same way as art began to apply rules and laws. All right, something else about art. According, he's talking about this, uh, this is Yunga talking about this guy, uh, I think it's this, yeah, this character Halder in his book uh, Heliopolis. <clears throat> this is from Heliopolis. According to Halder, a masterwork is the most valuable possession of a household. In the event of a fire, this and only this has to be saved, like the layers of old and the old family portraits. For who, in reality, knew the effect of pictures and working spaces in the dining room, in the room of a pregnant mother? In them lay the secret of the right measure, bringing forth fecundity and abundance. Then there were pictures who might, whose might was incommensurable to private ownership and whose place was in castles directed at the welfare of the people. Yet others were meaningful only in churches and how disheartening it was when you found such items in the museums. Still, how grand it is when pictures become holy with miraculous power exuding from them. Right, so this is a man who loved art and who really thought, I think, that art was almost a religious function. It was something that kept value, not, not monetary value necessarily, but, but kept the human experience integrated with value, right? Um, deeply meaningful. Um, so, you know, he's one of us in that regard. <laughs> yeah, one of us, one of us. Maybe we, hopefully we could be enough to be one of his. Exactly, know. yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so me, many of the artists we do are aspirational. You, you look at their careers and we're, yeah. you kind of try to unlock how did they pull it off. And yeah. here's, yeah. A, here's another artist who did not take no for an answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he had his own, I mean, he, he had his code, you know, and he lived by that. And, uh, you know, it's for us to sort of piece it together almost now a little bit. Um, I want to give you a kind of a rundown. And we are, we are sort of coming to the end um i want to give you an overview of some of his later years um 70s and on so in the 70s he moves into this place called uh wilflingen uh, or this town wilflingen uh, into a farmhouse that has since been turned into the Jungian museum um he publishes you know in the 70s he publishes that book on drugs um he travels everywhere man in the 70s in the 70s he's in his 70s right um, uh, Crete, uh, Ceylon, Liberia, Morocco, Sicily, uh, Verdun, Greece, many times Singapore. Um, in the eighties, he travels to Malaysia, Sumatra, the Seychelles, uh, a bunch of other places. That's like half of them, right? He's traveling all over the place as an old man, as an old man into his eighties. Um, let me give you a description that, uh, the writer Bruce Chatwin gave to him when he met, uh, Yunga, when Yunga was in his 80s, um, or he was 80, I should say, um, give you just this description. I want to pair it, think back to my description from that, that Stuart Hood translator. Um, <clears throat> my, own, uh, my own visit, this is from Bruce Chatwin, my own visit to Yunga was an odd experience. At 80, he had snow white hair, but the bounce of a very active schoolboy. He had a light cackling laugh laugh and tended to drift off if he was not the center of attention. He had recently published his book describing his experience with drugs. We know about that. And was about to publish, publish uh, Omisville. The ground floor of the house was furnished in the better near style. I don't know what that is with net curtains and white stoves and was inhabited by his second wife. Yeah. His first wife died in 1962. And then he later married a woman who was 25 years his junior. 
Uh, Jünger's own quarters upstairs had the leathery look of a soldier's bunker with cabinets for beetles on the landing and a sea of memorabilia, fossils, shells, helmets from both wars, skeletons of animals, and a collection of sand gla sand glasses. The only piece of machinery he liked were um, hourglasses. He thought they were, were metaphorically interesting. Mm. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, and I, uh, da, 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 da. If I had hoped for more memories of Paris under the occupation in our conversation, I was disappointed. In answer to questions, he simply recited an excerpt from the diary, though occasionally he would rush to the filing cabinet and come back with some piece of justification. So, you know, he's still got a lot of energy, but he's entering his old man phase, as anybody in their 80s, 80s would. Um in 1982, he's finally starting to get re-recognized in Germany. Germany is now sort of like, oh, yeah, we've got this guy here living out on the farm who wrote Storm of Steel. And oh, my gosh, he's got all these other books. He's awarded uh, the, how do you say it? Goethe? Goethe. 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 He's awarded yeah. the Goethe Prize, um, which apparently is a is a huge deal. It's massive, letters. massive. Okay. Huge. I, yeah. I don't think there's anything bigger. I mean, you could win the Nobel Prize, I suppose. But right, right. Uh, Within Germany, that's as, sure. I think, as big as it gets. Right. Um, and then the same year, he's actually visited by Borges and Borges loved him. Borges thought Storm of Steel was a masterpiece and loved all, you know, love. And Borges is multilingual, so he probably was able to read everything in German for all we know. Um, in 1984, uh, Jünger, along with Helmut Kohl, who was the chancellor of Germany, met with the French president, Francois Mitterrand, uh, at a Franco-German ceremony of reconciliation. So they brought, like, Jünger was like, we got this guy still. He could, maybe he can come out. <laughs> yeah, right. A <laughs> he's still, dignitary. He's still yeah, yeah, man yeah. of letters and right. a war hero right. still. And a war mm -hmm. hero. And he was going to shake the hand of the, the president of France, right? Um there is a funny story. Apparently, I think it was for this ceremony. It might have been another time he went to visit the, the president of, of France. He'd forgotten his passport. Now, he's a man well into his 80s, approaching 90. And he there'd been a stamp, a German stamp issued with his face on it, the Ernst Jünger stamp. And he brought these as like a kind of a novelty gift to give the, the president of France, but he'd forgotten his passport. And so in his travels, he comes to a point where he needed to have his passport, right? Customs oh, yeah. or whatever. Sure. And so he shows them the stamp. He's like, this is, you know, this is me. I'm on, I'm on the stamp. You're like, ah, yes, we see Mr. Junga that you are indeed on that stamp. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah, he, sort um, of, he, he airmailed himself to Mitterrand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> really, really just, just a funny. And he had that kind of craftiness. There was always like, I saw this later interview with him and there's only like one interview with him on uh, that's video. And he's very, he's got a certain charm to him. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fully translate with the language barrier and the age because this interview is happening when he's 100 years old, but he's smoking a cigarette. He's cracking the occasional joke. He's a charming fellow who, who's not who hasn't been broken down by the insanity of his life. You know, he's found a way. I think he has the found a way. He's been the anarch to the end. Right. He's like, you kind of can't do anything to me anymore because I'm, I'm free in here, you know? Um, and I think that's, I think that's Man, pretty special. I need a little more of that. I need right? a dose of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of us do. Yeah. And you know, and, the, and it's not that, you know, it was all, 
there's one sad part. I couldn't find any more information about this, and I'm sure there's some in German. Apparently in 1993, his second son, his, his remaining son, Alexander, who'd become a doctor, apparently he committed suicide. I'm not oh. sure why. I don't know. I don't know any more than literally that sentence, but obviously that's not um, not a good thing. Yeah. Um, and then at in 1998, like we said, at age 102, um, the last living person to have the German Pour le Merit medal, literally the last person with this medal, is high honor. Also, the get the prize, right? This, you know. Um, he passes on, but not before converting to Kevin. Can you guess it? The one true faith. <laughs> Woo! We got another one. We got one. I literally read that and I was like, oh my God, really? <laughs> I'm I'm just it was just it's interesting how many of our subjects sort of at the end are like are, are conversion are convert he wasn't born I, he wasn't raised catholic or anything i will say that i think and of course we're uh, making a little bit of jest uh mm -hmm. about this uh i will say that i think the artistic temperament is probably attracted to certain elements of what the church offers the church is quite artistic there's a yeah. there's a great deal of and it's actually one of the things that protestants object to uh in in some cases so i could see that would be my thesis as per why so many of our subjects being artists may indeed find themselves attracted to the catholic church at the I, end of their I lives think, i think that's fair yeah i mean also, you know, you know wasn't yeah. an atheist he was a it feels like he was a he he was a man exploring all possibilities i guess well and yeah. what is i mean what does the word catholic mean of course it mm -hmm. means you know universal or diverse um yeah. uh, you know in addition to the the point i made about the artistic temperament uh, i wonder too if it's it's that our subjects have so many sins they feel like they need the biggest church right. in the world right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the only yeah. Right. yeah yeah the only way i'm getting forgiven is i go right to i got to go yeah, right gotta... to catholicism <laughs> i got to oof I gotta make a few calls. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I hope that serves as a. I hope we feel like we got an idea who this guy is now, and 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 all of that fascinating figure for me to to dig into for the last few weeks. Man, totally enraptured by this guy. And that is the life of Ernst Jünger, Brad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that it. is that's the life of Ernst Jünger. Yeah. Woo! Nineteen. I learned a lot. Nineteen ninety-eight. He died. Wait, when did Kurt Co when did Cobain go? He, I think ninety four. Ernst Jünger outlived Kurt Cobain. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> holy yeah. moly! Yeah. yeah. It, oh, I, I'm. I, I did not expect this episode to go the ways that it did. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. I think you you did a fabulous job of uh, a banger, a straight ahead Good. Art of Darkness episode. You, me, some books, some ideas some silly jokes yeah. um and uh we're you know we're in we're in good shape i i think yeah. we've got to, to ask the the closing question before we do the after dark where we're going to talk about younger on acid with the creator of acid that's mm -hmm. only available if you go to patreon.com art of dark pod we hope you enjoy the show please go five star 
tell people we're getting places, we're doing numbers, and we want to we want to reach an even bigger audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's the fact. Uh, mm-hmm. So Brad, I think you have to ask me the question. Um, yeah, yeah, you, I might ask you in return. Yeah, yeah. What do you think Ernst Junger is doing now? If he were alive, if he, if he were still alive, what is I think? I think in this case, we assume he continued living, so he's like 127 <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> There's some conspiracy thread going on right now where they're like, Ernst Junger is still alive, he's right. living in Argentina, right. he's <laughs> he's in the bunker, right? He splits time between <laughs> the tunnels in Antarctica and uh, and Buenos Aires. Well, I um, loved one thing about him dying. He's literally he's 100 years old. He's still like occasion, at least occasionally. There's one part of the documentary where he's like at a restaurant with his wife smoking a cigarette. He's 100 years old. They're like, what? You like, can't kill me. No. You, you, and, yeah. And you can't even I couldn't even find out why he died. Like, it's not <laughs> like there was like a prolonged illness that, or anything. There's a there's a, a, a serious Obi-Wan Kenobi vibe about yeah. uh, this dude. Well, so to answer the closing question, uh, obviously, I think he's still writing. Yeah, but I wonder what he would be writing about. He, at this point, he may have felt uh, compelled to write about the internet, to write yeah. about technology. Hard to say. Uh, if he was alive at his prime now, I don't, I don't know because that turn he lived to be nine, you know, or into uh, nineteen ninety eight, ninety eight. Every the world changed so much with the internet. So yeah. I almost feel like he would maybe, maybe go into the breach once more and yeah. and write about that but he'd definitely be writing he'd be a wit on uh on the tweeters um yeah. and uh I, I i wonder what he would what his opinions would be about the state of the world right now i think he would be shaking his head and saying well be the anarch right what do you right. think what uh, he'd be doing yeah see i think he would be um i think we have to not I, I think it's important to keep in mind this this sort of conservatism that he had. And and again, like we said at the front, this doesn't mean he just agrees with everything the American Republican Party says, right? It's, it's, you have, we have to we have to think more clearly about what it what it would mean for him. He had this at a spiritual sense that he believed that something had happened around World War One where we had let in demonic forces right and i think he would be having a lot of i told you so about things that are happening now in some ways but i don't think he would neatly line up with a lot of the sort of the online right people honestly i mean i think he is would be I think he would see a lot of that stuff as just progressivism and, and liberalism and and Titanic forces in different clothes, honestly. Lar- LARPing. Right, right. And and so I think he would be, I think, again, he would find himself um, sort of homeless in this sort of political discourse. And, you know, we'd have to discover, rediscover him again two generations from now, the things that he's talking about. I think he would, I think he's just always, I think his destiny was sort of to be like, the wandering Jew kind of figure, right? Like never quite having a home, but always uh, his take on everything, always pretty interesting. And you can kind of try to put him in one category, but it doesn't quite fit. The Vandervogel, the Vandervogel, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. he he stayed that way his his entire life. Uh, Right. Fascinating. Excellent work. 
you know Thank what you. your your yes, you know what your next uh, German writer is going to be. It's got to be Goethe. <laughs> I can't. I still can't pronounce that. There's no way I'm. Gosh it. darn it! People yeah. like me, and I'm Goethe enough. <laughs> Dude, you have to take the Germans from now. I'll take on the. I don't even know what. Yeah. No. no. Yeah. No. It'll be all right. Um, great work, Brad Thanks, Kelly. Man. Thank you. Artofdarkpod.com, Patreon.com/slash Artofdarkpod. We'll see you on the after dark. Mm-hmm. Man, oh man. Ernst Junger. Junger. <laughs> yeah, I may have slipped up a couple times in the in the in the Junger. I might have said Junger a couple times. Jung again. <laughs> Jung again. Yeah, it's sort of uh, a <laughs> man. Junger, Junger in Paris. <laughs> Playing the hits. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah.